0: Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. Today, we have Mark Biros. Hey, Mark.
1: Hello. How are you doing?
0: Good. And Peter, of course. Hey, Peter.
1: Hi, guys. So nice to talk to you both.
0: So a little background on this. So Mark is married to Sadia, who we've had on the show. I, I know at one point I referred to Mark and Sadia as the first couple of critical rationalism, and I met them through, you know, being on Peter's Facebook page and kind of common interests in science and in Deutsch's theories. Now it's, it's kind of well-known that, you know, I have this podcast. I used to have a website. I hope to would eventually get it back, but I don't have it right now. And it's clearly dedicated to advancing and talking about the four strands worldview and things like that. And yet I'm often quite critical of people who are big names in that area. David Deutsch in particular, I often have criticized his theories on this show. So because of that, it's it's not that uncommon to have people who are attracted to aspects of David Deutsch's theories, but are put off by some aspects of his theories, to contact me and to send me messages and to say, I really don't like this, or I've got this criticism, but like nobody agrees with me and things like that. Well, somewhere along the line, Mark started to uh, Facebook me on a regular basis, and over time, we had collected a whole bunch of tweets coming from David Deutsch or from Brett Hall or, you know, anyone, somebody from that area over on Twitter. He had contacted me with just, here's this tweet. I totally disagree or something like that. Right. And and the body of criticism has started to grow. And I thought said, Hey, Mark, it would be kind of fun if you just came on the show and maybe offer up some of your criticisms that you've been collecting over time. And kind of how maybe your feelings about Deutsch's views, four strand views have changed over time. And so Mark said, sure, I'll come on the show. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to give Mark a chance to, to air his criticisms. And I'm going to then let kind of like, I don't necessarily know what they are. I know maybe what some of them are because they came out of that thread that Mark and I have had, but uh, um I'm going to give Peter and I a chance. It's not a debate. It's just us talking about things that are sometimes said on Twitter that are advanced either by David Deutsch or by his fans that maybe don't sit the greatest with people. Sometimes maybe I agree with them, but I can see why people would be concerned with them. I know many worlds that often comes up, but other times I'm not sure I do agree with them. And uh, so we we just, I don't know where we're going to go with this, but I think it'll be a fun conversation. So Mark, why don't you uh, go ahead and anything else you want me to say about you or to introduce about you?
2: Uh, I I guess I'll just say it um, if if that's the case. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And I I hope I'm a valuable person to have on the show and have some insights into it. Um, I would like to say, though, as as critical as I am of of Deutsch and the surrounding uh, critical rationalist culture, specifically the Deutsch the Deutsch side of things, is I, I do still find him very influential and, and have a lot of positive things to say as well. So yeah. Don't get me wrong that I'll I'll I'm gonna sound like a, a David Deutsch troll perhaps this whole time. But I, I do find him to be very worth listening to what he has to say. Um I did start rereading a little bit of Beginning of Infinity about a week before this podcast just to see if I could, you know, get some straight to the source stuff in that. And I, I do have some criticism in that and it, it borders on kind of pedantic in a sense, but, um, there, there are some criticisms I have for, for that, for that text as well. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, this is, this is one of the best books that has to deal with philosophical right. and scientific issues that I have ever read in my life. And I, I still believe that. So, I mean, I, I'm very much, uh, I wouldn't say a, a Deutschian in a sense. And I, I've perhaps maybe strayed away from critical rationalism. I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm I'm so important that I have some new type of thing I can identify with, but right. I, I really personally do not care. You know I'll, I will criticize anything, and I think I guess so. I'll, I'll just start saying one of my main criticisms I have with the critical rationalism at the at the get go is I do not see a lot of criticism of. David Deutsch's ideas amongst his own community. Right. And I understand if you are into David Deutsch's ideas, you're going to actually agree with most of them. But certainly, we cannot agree with everything, right? There has to be something that you disagree with. And I, I do find there to be a very, just a void of criticism or a lack of criticism within the community of itself and like he certainly can't agree with everything you know that hall or you know some of the other guys say all the time like he has to say that okay this 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 libertarian onslaught of stuff he just said right here is just completely inaccurate or just nonsense and i just don't see it now I don't mind, like my wife's very active and I'll criticize her. I'll be the first comment to criticize oh, I've something that. that
0: she's. I've noticed yeah. that. Yeah.
2: So, and she does it to me too. And our feelings don't get hurt. We're, we still very much love each other. You know, um, our, actually our, our biggest arguments in our marriage have been ones of, of philosophical grounds. I mean, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't be airing out personal grievances. <laughs> but We, we kind of got into it one time over Heidegger's, uh, why is there something rather than nothing um, metaphysics comment you know and like that was one of our hotbed things that we know she would say it too yeah that's one of our biggest fights we had you
0: know so that's
2: how our marriage works but
0: you know i I would i would love to see you know the marriage therapist reaction when you guys come in and you're 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 having a debate over heidegger's why is there something other than nothing that would be awesome (laughs)
1: <laughs> Don't you know, Mark, what Jordan Peterson says about that? That you can never win an argument against your wife because even when you win, you lose,
3: right?
1: Perhaps
2: <laughs> yes, I'm not sure he's the originator of that guy. I, mean, I, I, I hope that George Peterson is not a critical rationalist. I, or is he? Is he part of the? It, was I supposed to collect tweets from him? Yeah, I could, have, I could. have. I could have a field day on that one. <laughs> All but right. Yeah, he, so Peter, do you, since you run the group and I know that Bruce is pretty qualified for this one and I know that you see criticism
3: but oh, yeah. like
1: I
2: but I I don't really see it the way uh, I feel I should see it
1: within the group. Fair enough. Well, you know, if you look at the list of the top contributors, which I can as the administrator I can bring up, there I would say there's a pretty good diversity of uh, opinion. I mean, there's a guy who doesn't seem to agree with Deutsch about anything other than many worlds. There's several people who are pretty far left, um, you know, and then there's there's Bruce and myself, too, who have have uh, are not perfectly aligned with with Deutsch um, on some issues.
0: It's so like like this podcast that Peter and I do, it has extensively criticized Deutsch's ideas, right? And I, I know you're familiar with that. Yeah, and you probably haven't heard every single episode, Mark, but I know you've listened to quite a number of episodes of this this podcast. So I'm I'm sure you're you're aware that we're actually quite critical of Deutsch's ideas. Well
2: well, there's also a big reason as to why I email you or text you about right. criticisms I have. Because right. I I feel like they're not going on deaf ears or going to some, you know, um, acolyte of of the group or whatever. Obviously I talked to my wife quite a bit. So yeah, I I realized that. So that's why, that's why you are the person I usually go to on that.
0: (laughs) Well, I suspect that's why you're not the only one who does that with me. Right. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I, I think that there is a group out there that differs from Deutsch on a number of things. And I'm the one who usually gets their private messages. And and I think that to some degree is exactly what you're talking about is that they don't always feel comfortable offering their criticisms because they're friends with people. Now you're talking about Peter's group. I actually think Peter's group does fairly okay. But like, if you're on Twitter, I think it's quite hard to find um, criticisms other than like, from me, I mean, there's like a small handful. Um, And I think there's more people that have criticisms but because they're friends with people in the group and they don't want to affre- offend them, that they keep the criticisms to themselves. Now that, that's an interesting phenomena that is happening, right? That, that there is such a strong set of opinions on certain things that the people who have differing opinions aren't so sure they can bring their opinions up. Right. And and that was one of the reasons why I kind of brought you on the show is I thought, I, I thought, you know, like some of these people, I, I I don't know that they would want to come on the show and talk about their true opinions. Like I knew Mark would want to. <laughs> so that was why I asked you to do it is you, you're you're vocalizing for, I think a lot of people actually that um, maybe haven't felt the most comfortable coming up and offering their criticisms.
2: Well, hopefully that's the case. Uh, um, maybe I'll get all your emails and text messages after this. I don't. I you don't probably know. We'll, we'll
1: will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's somewhat rare for. I mean, the Deutsch, Deutsch, Deutsch's ideas or some of the the followers of him seems to me. I mean, I mostly mostly just troll on Twitter, but they they get a lot of pushback on Twitter. But it's relatively rare for someone who probably has like a deeper understanding of the assertions behind the worldview to um, criticism, to criticize the, the ideas, which I think is what really what, um, uh, why I, it's so good to talk to you guys because you obviously do. But
0: So I think the, you're right that they get a lot of pushback, but it's mostly from the outside, right? It's, yes, there's yes. not a lot of internal pushback. And I think that's what Mark is talking about. And this is the, this is the thing, right? Is, from their point of view, they get tons of criticism, so they're open to criticism and they're hearing criticism out, right? And, and that's true, right? But I I think Mark is really detecting something else, which is that those in the group that agree with it, they shouldn't be quite so well aligned. And I don't think they are. I just think that some of the misalignment doesn't come to the surface.
2: Yeah I feel like it's become kind of cultish in, in a sense for some people you know and that kind of is you had is to use the, some, you had
0: to use the c word
3: <laughs> yeah I,
2: I can I can't help it but you know and like as much as I yeah, I feel like critical rationalism should have like you know if there are commandments you know thou shalt not have any authorities of knowledge should be like number 1 you know and and it does seem to be like well here's the authority of knowledge and let my let myself align align myself with that authority of knowledge and it it does Yeah, Twitter. I feel like is the worst. You go on Twitter. Twitter is the worst.
0: Twitter is the worst. Yeah,
2: and even there are people that I follow. People that are kind of, if for lack of a better word, trolls or whatever. You know, professional critics of some some movement. You know, like there's people that follow political candidates that don't like them that just criticize everything they say. You know, there's there's some people like that on the on the Deutsche Twitter Twitter files. I guess I should say, but um, but yeah, I I feel like Twitter is probably the worst place for that. Um, but yeah, um, so onto the so I started reading Beginning of Affinity, and the first thing that I really have a criticism of, and I feel like this is a lot of times with Deutsch, is sometimes it's really not a, a matter of criticism of, of the content, or I guess it is the content, but it's almost a matter of degree with which he says things. And he'll say something, for instance, like Spaceship Earth, and I'll get to that in a second. And then some of the people that follow Deutsch will interpret that as this and they'll go even farther with it. Right. And then it becomes something completely outlandish and I'm kind of like, well, wow, that's, that's can't be what we're talking about here, you know? And then sometimes I feel like maybe I'll see Deutsch like that tweet or, you know, give no criticism of it. And obviously you can't criticize and like, or say everything. I'm not saying he has to do that, you know, but I just don't see it as much. But so like, Spaceship Earth, beginning of infinity, he talks about, you know, well, the I have a quote here, you know, today almost the entire capacity of Earth's life support system for humans has been provided not for us, but by us. So even that, I, I really don't agree with at all in, in the content. So like, I get what he's saying that, you know, we wear clothes and our knowledge has been able to have us to wear clothes to live in cold environments. But at the same time, the majority of life-supporting systems on this planet is the sun which we didn't create and it provides all the heat for us to in energy for that matter to do things and the oxygen was not provided by us so right from the get-go the vast like the two most important things we live were not created by humans whatsoever you know like maybe cyanobacteria oxygenated the atmosphere but that's not us you know and that's life you know, and that's, I think that's the biggest producer of oxygen we've had on this planet. But even from the get go, so we're like, well, that's kind of pandemic in a, in a sense, but I feel like he doubles down on it quite a bit. And then he says like, things like, but the biosphere no more provides humans with the life support system than it provides us with radio telescopes, which I find completely uh, just not true whatsoever. For one, we evolved from ape-like creatures on this planet. You know, with very little knowledge. I mean, I'm not sure when when we started acquiring the knowledge. You know, because Deutsch has a, a tendency instead of a spectrum, he kind of it's like concrete. You, oh, you don't have universality at all, and now you do, and bam, you're a universal explainer. But we evolved on this planet, and it did support life. Like life, as we know it, doesn't exist anywhere, and obviously, it, it likely does. But I just don't understand how, and I know that he's trying to go against kind of the more green, radicalized, you know, spaceship Earth ideology out there. But I feel like he goes way too far with the spaceship Earth thing in his book. And I understand sort of what he's getting at. But at the same time, like, he also makes the statement that the Earth is, the moon is no more hospitable than the Earth. And I'm just like, how can you say that in the same sentence? Like, I don't know what the word hospitable means anymore. Is hospitable mean if I give you English breakfast tea, if if you come over to my house or not? So, like, I, I I, I, I don't understand, like, where he's coming from with how, like, hospitable the earth is and how, like, something like the vacuum of space could be considered just as hospitable as the earth we live in
1: i don't know to myself deutsche's point there makes quite a bit of sense i interpret him more as saying everything that that takes us sort of beyond you know just to basically just an animal existence where we're just following you know what's on our genetic code and living in this specific climate and this specific place whereas we we move to the entire world more or less every every climate in, in existence it's all it's all about human knowledge right um and you know that's what gives us a, a better life it's not in not living in quote unquote harmony with nature it's in using our knowledge to go beyond nature it, I don't know that makes a lot of sense to me
0: so I don't necessarily hear you two disagreeing right it's Mark is emphasizing, that a huge part of our ability to survive has nothing to do with us that earth is actually special um in some way and i'm hearing peter say well but what Deutsch is really talking about is the use of knowledge the fact that most of the environments we live in required knowledge and we don't really just use we actually had to generate that knowledge to be able to survive i like the example Mark used though, where he, what was it again about the radio telescope? Can you read that again, Mark?
2: Sure. Um, he says, but the biosphere no more provides humans with a life support system than it provides us radio telescopes.
0: Okay. So let's, let's take that statement. Okay. And now I have said this multiple times in the podcast, I believe very strongly in charitable reading. Okay. But let's just take an initial reaction to that statement. My initial reaction is, is that Mark's right. That's a false statement. I have to actually stop and think about how might I interpret this in a true way. And then I can come up with something and I can say, okay, if what he means is this, then I agree with him, which is my, my tendency. I usually want to stop and think about how can I try to interpret this as a true statement? Okay. But I can totally see why Mark would say, that statement is false, and I think a straight reading of that statement, it is a false statement. Would you disagree with that, Peter? Well, I mean, I
1: I think the most charitable reading is that it's sort of a true statement, unless you interpret it very, very literally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's my reaction.
0: So, in what sense is it a true statement, and what sense is it a default statement? Let's 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 look at it that way.
1: Well, what do you think, Mark? Do you think there's any truth to it? I mean, I, I think it's
2: uh, if, I, if I, I I think he meant it literally when he said it in the book. And I know that it is a false statement, literally. I mean, it's P- Paley's watch doesn't just show up on the on the heath as he would say it with a radio telescope, yeah. you know, so like the Earth is very much a life support system. I mean, life originated on this planet with without knowledge. And, you know, unless we take the, you know, and people that are slick will say, oh, wait a minute. Yes, it did, because genes are knowledge. And now we yeah. can go down that thing. Yeah. But, like, I, there are two different, if, if I can accept that definition of genes being knowledge, um, but those are two very different types of knowledge we're talking about. And I, I, I understand you could maybe put them in the same, like, you know, this is definition one, this is definition two. But those are two types of knowledge. And they definitely did not come up with the type of universal ex- explanation, you know, universal explainer type of knowledge type of thing that Deutsch is referring to in this aspect. And I, I truly think he, he really meant that literally. In that. And the problem is, like I said, is I feel like Deutschians or some people will read that and they will. And if he doesn't mean it literally, that they will take that and just run with it. And I, I see stuff like that all the time. I'm just kind of like, it just astounds me. And, like, look, I'm, I am probably am more of a climate change guy. I mean, I'm not, like, a green re- radicalist or something like that.
3: Yeah.
2: But I, at the same time, like, this earth is pretty special, man. And, like, <laughs> I, I don't know how we can say things that, like, the moon is just as hospitable as the earth is. I mean, for one, it should be, like, a, the degrees of knowledge that you have to attain to make a place hospitable should have some type of like uh, barometer on like how hospitable a place is like you need a lot more knowledge to live on the moon to make it hospitable than you do on the earth so there's yeah. no way i find that you can equate hospitality of these two environments together they're they're just not
1: well you so, would need need quite a quite a bit of knowledge to live a lot of places on earth too that humans seem to thrive in I mean, I I think it's an actually an incredibly profound point in a way that, you know, I mean, no one's saying it wouldn't we'd have to be we wouldn't have to be in quite a uh, a more advanced knowledge state to thrive on the moon, but it's a, it's at least theoretically possible given this this the force of of human knowledge, and I think we'll, our species will get there maybe sooner than than many people think.
0: Okay. Should we move on to the next one or do you guys want to add anything else in this one? I actually feel like that was pretty good coverage of the topic.
2: We can move on. It's fine with me. So I feel that in beginning of infinity, he talks about the importance of testability and predictions. And I feel that he quite often downplays testability and prediction in, in science. And I get his point that obviously we should try to explain things. as as much as possible but he often has a lot of criticism about instrumentalism specifically the Copenhagen interpretation and he makes it a point that in beginning infinity that prediction does not play that important of a role in science now he obviously does say it plays a role but certainly not the main role and I'm not saying it presents the main role but his own definition of instrumentalism in the copenhagen interpretation is basically that is explanationless and and it only has predictive power the the problem i have with how he frames this one is that we progress a lot with quantum mechanics with the copenhagen interpretation that a lot of those people within that group thought they weren't even talking about they're to consider some of these things imaginary and it was strictly predictive power, and it did wonders. It revolutionized our way of life. So I, I feel that I would much rather have an explanation of why an, an event happens and it doesn't happen, but if you give me a theory that is truly only predictive, and it checks out is as great as the Copenhagen interpretation does, or just an equation of that, of that group would do... I'm, I'm going to double down on it and say, hey, I'm going with these guys over here that have no explanation because it has done so many things. So I
0: I, I think this is a really interesting criticism. Thank you for bringing it up. This is one that I've been kind of mulling over and you've put it in really precise terms that I don't think I've been able to. Well,
2: well thanks. Um, but yeah, I, I and I'm, I, I you know, it's funny because I like, you know, I've, I've been very influenced by Deutsch, but You know, the whole time I've read Deutsch, I have never been a many worlds person. I have been more attracted to the other things he's had to say. And I know I'm not even going to talk about the many worlds, really. But and I don't really have a favorite pet theory of quantum mechanics. You know, I'm just kind of like, I guess it's to say I'm agnostic on it, you know. But I feel that all the all the interpretations of quantum mechanics, I don't feel like have offered really much any difference on predictive power of what will happen so i'm not really sure like why why isn't predictive power the the point in in a sense you know i'm not saying it's the whole point and i know that explanations enrich our understanding of the world and quite often better explanations with more predictive will have more predictive power but copenhagen interpretation underneath his own um, definition of it is explanationless and it is very very successful so (sighs) Yeah, can I just
1: interject a question here? Go ahead. Isn't isn't the I think one of the things that really convinced me of of many worlds is listening to people talk about the Copenhagen interpretation who completely admitted that it it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. You know, isn't that the whole point of like Schrodinger's cat thought experiment that there there's there's something he brought
2: it up himself, I believe, right? David yes. Deutsch, no Schrodinger, Schrodinger, I think, Schrodinger right yeah. the cat, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That was his 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 thought experiment, and the 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 idea was, but the idea was, it was a, a reductio ad absurdum. It right? was supposed it was to, to be, it yes. was supposed to indicate that that the that there's something missing there, which is a more coherent explanation, which I think is provided by by many worlds. At least that's my understanding. But but many
2: worlds in, in does not add any predictive power to that though it just offers an explanation or or therefore an interpretation and to me i i mostly care i i do care about that stuff but if i wanted to you know be a experimentalist or an engineer i care about predictive power quite a bit you know and the engineers took the copenhagen interpretation and they ran away with it and boy did our life change because of that and i think that's a very positive thing
0: so i actually confronted deutsch on this one on twitter Awesome. And he was, res- and he responded to me. So I actually said, "How do you then explain the success of the Copenhagen interpretation and the fact that it did move on to do all this?" And he basically responded back, and I, I don't have the exact quote because I didn't know we were going to bring this up, and I, I don't even know if I could have found it anyhow. But he said, "It had, an it, it that the quantum physics has an inherent um, nascent explanation present in it." Now, here's the thing. I agree with him on that. I think that that is absolutely true. But I think he's missed the point that that is always true, that there is simply no such thing as a purely predictive theory. All theories, even one that you claim is explanationless, still has some level of explanation. And this is something that I actually think the Deutschians get wrong. I don't know so much that Deutsch gets this wrong, but like I've talked to numerous Fans of David Deutsch on Twitter, and they are thoroughly confused on this point. So, the example that I've used on the podcast is um, IQ, the idea that is IQ a legitimate explanation? And they'll say it's explanationless. And I'll say, no, it is not explanationless. It's low explanation. The two are not the same. <laughs> and so, I mean, like most theories have some level of explanation. Right. And anything you can bring up, if I say Copenhagen and I say, well, there's a collapse of the wave function, that is an explanation. It's not a great explanation <laughs> and it doesn't take you very far. That's true. But you can't say it's completely explanationless. Right. It's literally trying to explain what you see in terms of in terms of a wave function collapse where there was this wave out there. It was doing things, you observe it and it vanishes and you end up with, and that's a completely understandable explanation, right? And one that can now be criticized. Um, So the idea that, that uh, Copenhagen was explanationless is not strictly true. Now you, again, we have to, we have to charitably interpret people. If they say it's explanationless, maybe they mean that literally in which case they're wrong. Or maybe they don't mean that literally. Maybe they just mean it's not a very strong explanation. It's not an explanation that takes you very far. It leaves more mysteries. That is true, right? Copenhagen, like the the example that I've used that I need to do a podcast episode on and I need to really help people understand it, but it's the elitzer um, weidman bomb experiment. Basically, this is what convinced me that there was probably something too many worlds, at least as far as being an explanation. So the idea is it's a real experiment that's been done. Um, I don't think they used real bombs, but use something equivalent. And you can create basically something that detects if the bomb is a dud or not to any arbitrary level of um, precision that you want. So you put a bomb in there. You don't know if the bomb's a dud or not. It, It goes off if a photon hits its detector under this experiment. And so you send a photon at it and it goes through this apparatus that has multiple paths and you have to work out the mathematics of how it works. Okay. And if there's an interference pattern um, that shows up, then you know, the bomb would have exploded had the photon hit the detector um, because the wave function collapsed. But if, if you don't have the, um, I actually have it backwards. If the interference pattern disappears, then you know, the, the, the bomb would have blown up but if there is a wave um an interference pattern then you know that the bomb's a dud so you can basically counterfactually determine if the bomb would have exploded okay now try to explain that with copenhagen it is 100 impossible because and basically when i've actually brought this up with people who believe in Pope copenhagen what they will tell me and I actually have quotes from them like on Quora where I've asked this question is, well, you can't hold it against the theory that it's not can't hold against a theory an explanation. It's not trying to explain. And I'll say, yeah, I can, I can thoroughly hold against the theory that it doesn't try to explain something that it should be trying to explain. Now many worlds has an explanation for how the, um, the Elitzer Weidman bomb experiment works. It's that the bomb exploded in another world. And then that world then decoheres from our world, the one that we're in, sometimes it explodes in our world. Okay, there's like a certain percentage chance that it explodes, um, but it explodes in the other world. And then that is what causes the wave function collapse in our world and that then we can detect it. So that would be an example of how many worlds is the only explanation for something that is completely predictable through quantum physics, which is why David Deutsch advances it as the explanation of quantum physics. Here's the thing though, many worlds doesn't explain everything. Like for example, many worlds does not explain the Born rule. Okay, and this is this is one that often gets brought up against um many worlds. They'll say, "Well, many worlds can't explain the Born rule." And they're right, it can't. <laughs> but Copenhagen can't either. So I, I, in this case, it's it's not like Copenhagen explains the Born rule, but can't explain the Alitzer-Vaidman bomb experiment. Copenhagen can't explain either. And so I think this is the sense in which Um, many worlds is kind of the only explanation we have for certain aspects of quantum physics, but it doesn't explain everything. And right now, Mark is right. It doesn't make any new predictions. It does make new predictions. It just inevitably a wave function collapse isn't going to behave the same way as many worlds. Now we don't know how to make the net. We don't have the knowledge necessary to do the experiments. Deutsch famously explained how to build a, um, if we knew how to build an AGI on a quantum computer, we could use it. There's other things that could be done from what I understand, but we don't actually have the technology to test between the theories as of this point in time, right? So this is one that I've got mixed feelings on, because I can understand why scientists are very skeptical of many worlds, since it right now it's only an explanation. It doesn't make any predictions that we can actually test as of today. And back on episode, um, the cooperation episode, episode 61, I actually argued that scientists weren't entirely wrong to be skeptical of many worlds. And because it would be normal for them to want to actually test, does this other world exist? Right. On the other hand, I would love to see a scientist try to explain the litzer weidman bomb experiment, like seriously try to offer an explanation of it without referencing many worlds. I, I don't think it can be done right? So I think we're in a weird state with quantum physics where I wouldn't say Copenhagen is explanationless. That's where I would differ from Deutsch, although I'm not sure he literally means it, right? But I think Copenhagen does offer an explanation. And I think that's why it got us as far as it did. But we're now kind of at the point where it doesn't offer explanations of some things. And there's one competitor on the table that takes us further and there aren't really alternatives like I haven't looked into quantum Darwinism, so I don't know about that one, but I have looked into Boehm and Boehm's a disaster when it tries to explain things like this, right? I mean it's it can't it, what it does is it tries to explain things that didn't need an explanation, which is why it's like worse. like it's the worst of all possible worlds from what I can figure out. Again, I I'm saying things that I probably in no way qualified to say what I really need to do is I need to do an episode where I actually show you that I'm right by giving you the actual mathematics and they're not that hard yeah i just have
1: a uh, hope that hope this doesn't take us on a tangent but the as i understand it deutsch originally uh proposed the idea of a quantum computer to test many worlds that's right he didn't know that it was gonna gonna start this you know Ball rolling, and people are going to actually make these computers. At least as I understand it. Uh, But what you said is that the existence of an AGI running on a quantum computer would would provide evidence for many worlds. I I guess I'm not quite understanding why that would provide Uh, evidence for many worlds more than just the exact the fact that the quantum computer exists.
2: He's recently he's recently tweeted about that or i think someone yeah, on did. your your facebook group on the okay. many worlds i think i can't say his name right like Henry or h-e-r-n-e um i think he he gave an explanation for a bit something about how like the agi will experience the it's quote-unquote yes. entanglement or the branching of the multiverse and for one instance like experience both both worlds at one time and then and then like collapse or something like that. And so only one, it which sh- I, 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 I went through it and I just not sure I really agree with that. Or I, I maybe I don't understand it, but that, that didn't really
1: sit, you know, So the AGI did. could come back and tell us, Oh, look, you know, this is, this is what's going, it would be like, uh, the, uh, uh, the the inter inter uh, or multi dimensional TV from Rick and Morty or something and <laughs> tell yes. us what's happening in all these other worlds. Uh, it's
0: it's actually it's actually more. So I I don't have it off the top of my head. Like if I was going to go over this, I'd have to go over the experiment in detail. But but I do have some knowledge of how quantum computation works because I went through a textbook on the subject. Okay. And I, from what I understand, what Deutsch is saying is reasonable. Right. That it's if you actually had an AGI running on a, a quantum computer, um, it would be it would have to be able to experience things. Right. And, it, and so it would be able to report back um, different things. So if I recall, the experiment was that it would because of just the the the, the mathematics and the physics of how a quantum mm-hmm. computer works, um, if it was many worlds, then it would be it would report one way. But if it was a wave function collapse, it would report a different way. So it would come back and it would be able to say, yes, such and such happened, but I don't have the information as to um, what the answer was. And and like, I can't remember exactly how it works out, but it actually works out that the two theories make a different prediction. So it requires knowledge of AGI to be able to run the experiment um, because of the way the experiment was set up, but it's not a, it's not an unreasonable experiment. It's an actual experiment that would be an example of how, copenhagen and many worlds do in fact make different predictions
1: well that cl- clears that up for me i was kind of the, wondering. you
2: could do a, you could do a whole podcast on that because even in my head i have all kinds of things to say about that that would sidetrack us i would think
0: yeah and, and you know what i don't know it well enough off the top of my head i would i would want to actually sit down go through it my initial impression was just based on my knowledge of how quant- of quantum computation works is that there was nothing unreasonable about this proposal, but I, I like didn't work out how it actually works. I
2: mean, you'd have so, to have a pretty good theory of consciousness to be able to know the AGI is there and then you have to trust what it ex- tells you what it experienced and all, all kinds of things like that. You, yeah. know, you would have to take for granted.
0: So this is going to sound anyway. weird, but I'm pr- fairly certain that this isn't an, an uncommon way that they talk about things. Like it seems like when I was studying Boehm they did something really similar where they 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 worked out um, what the experience would be of an AGI. I, like I've seen this, like I think this is a thought experiment that's been around inside of quantum physics anyhow, and that David Deutsch was exploiting it for many worlds.
2: So we're tying this into the detestability and prediction thing. And, you know, and, and you talked about how, you know, everything has some type of explanation to it. And, and I tend to agree with that. And and so well then you agree with Deutsch but Deutsch doesn't seem to agree with that you know he seems to have a hard line between explanation and no explanation because I've talked to instrumentalists or Copenhagen guys that say "Well, oh, classical wave function is an explanation you know and I'm like well I guess it's one it's not one I'd prefer you know but you know all theories kind of have a, a part where okay yeah I ain't gotten enough. I can't explain where this comes from you know I don't I don't expect many worlds to explain what the uh where the universal wave function originated from or something like, that. Oh, right. I got you. You can't explain that your theory is explanationless, you know? So it, there always seems to be some ya thing that you can't explain this. So your theory is, you know, not all the way true or something. I, I but, think, a well,
0: more ac- I think a more accurate but, statement would be that many worlds is a deeper explanation than Copenhagen.
3: And yeah, that way we're be not, better.
0: yeah, that, that way we're not declaring it a non-explanation, which then is like, not literally true. But I think it's absolutely a deeper explanation of quantum physics. It, it literally answers, like you think about a lot of the mysteries of quantum physics that people almost treat almost sacredly or like magic, you know, that get picked up by new age crystal people or something like that. Many worlds literally answers like 90% of the things that they try to exploit, right? It, it explains what that quantum physics is actually a local phenomenon. It explains how that can be, and yet it can seem like it's not. It offers explanations, like, like I said, of the elitzer weidman bomb experiment. It explains numerous, numerous mysteries of quantum physics, and it demystifies it. Not all the way. It Not all the way. I'll admit that but it goes so much further than the other explanations that are available. And so I don't think there's any significant doubt that many worlds is the deepest explanation of quantum physics that we currently have on the table. But I I agree with you that you cannot literally call Copenhagen merely prediction and explanationless. I just don't think that's true. By the way, if it were true, you wouldn't be able to test between them. Like, David Deutsch is proposing. Like you, how would you be able to do that if it it doesn't have an explanation behind it?
2: I guess if all of your equations you just say are are predictive only, you know, whether you use Heisenberg matrices or you know Schrodinger equations, so this this is just a meaningless equation, but it predicts all these things. I guess you could probably frame it in that way and maybe maybe make your argument. I I suppose. Um, But you know, the problem I have with the explanation that Many Worlds gives. And one reason why I won't subscribe to it as much is then it, it lacks the observation evidence that I wouldn't like to have. For instance, yes. it will explain if the bomb went off or not, but I don't ever see the bomb. You know, That's I have right. no evidence of this at all. And I feel like as much as he seems, as much as, and especially the Deutsch community, I feel like, does not give enough credence to the importance of testability and predictability in science. They really downplay observation. And I'm not sure if this is just a a coping mechanism that many world's people have that, oh, observation is not as important in science as you think. But I think it's very important and one of the most important things, you know, and I'm not going to say what's more important than the other. But I think we need all of these things together. It's not like one thing's more important than the other. We need everything. And. I understand because then they'll frame, well, everything's theory laden. So, therefore, observations don't matter because there's a theory behind it. But it's kind of like a chicken or an egg thing. Like, well, we didn't just become born with theories unless you're going to say that, you know, my instinct to suckle from a breast is is, is a theory. You know, I mean, that's more of a Which, gene, Popper, gene Popper knowledge thing. Is.
0: Yes. Popper says Popper does use the term theory. Yes.
2: But it's a genetic knowledge thing it and is. not. And not a, you know, something that comes from our brain in a sense, you know, and, and, um, so that is,
0: that is one of the misunderstandings Deutschians have, by the way, when they talk about theory laden Popper's idea of a theory laden, um, observation included genetic theories and had to include it or it didn't work. So, yeah, I,
2: I don't know how else it couldn't, that's the only way I could see getting around it, you know, and maybe that's fair, but like I said earlier in the podcast, I feel like there's a very important distinction between genetic knowledge, if we define it that way, and knowledge coming from a universal explainer. Right. Those are completely different.
1: Don't you think that the baby who has the impulse, maybe the basic impulse to to suck, is is there? But then you know the baby is going to forget about it pretty quickly if it doesn't doesn't go anywhere. I would think. Whereas, so it is kind of a theory in a way that a testable theory. I. You know,
2: I I have two nephews, well, not two, I have four nephews and nieces, and um, I guess I have two nephews and two nieces, I guess. (laughs) Besides the point, um, I've always been fascinated by how these beings create knowledge, you know, like what happens in their brains, like that they all of a sudden can even start to talk, and uh, quite often when I think about these problems, I think about a newborn, and I don't feel like they are born with any theories of how the world operates, and then somehow they seem to make it work. And before you know it, they're walking around they're they're talking to you, you know, yeah. and I, I have been completely fascinated by that my entire life. And I have, I have never seen anyone give a, a great explanation of how that, that light bulb really ignites right. in, in somebody. And I really don't expect anybody to.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's I, one of the most interesting things I've seen in this, this world is watch, watching that process. when they start, start talking and interacting with the world. It's, it's like a miracle, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, and and they will say, and Deutsch will say, our observations tell us nothing about the world. And I I, I understand what, what he's saying in that. And quite often, I, I I don't know where these inductivists live that say that you observe something and it tells you what the theory is. And I guess these people exist. I have never really seen it explicitly said too much. And I, I feel like there's a lot of characteristics characterization of the logical positive movement by Deutsch that is maybe not completely wrong, but not completely right as well. And a lot of those logical positives guys somewhat agree with Popper's criticism and and change their ways. I mean, some of his advisors were the main guys of that group. Um, And he was very, he was very influenced by them as well too. I mean, he kind of took logical positive and, and turned it around in a sense that's why mm-hmm. some people consider him part of that family. I think he's part of the family. He's a little different. But I'm not going to sit there and call him logical positives. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. that's that important. But, but to me, like, like so Herschel discovered infrared light. And he was doing an experiment. He was, he was figuring out how the different wavelengths of light would, like, have different temperature readings or something like that. He was, he was doing his um, testing. And he noticed that one part was reading something different than what it should have. And it was invisible. Like, you know, there was nothing there. So, he, you know, as any reasonable person would think, or oh, something wrong with my testing apparatus, you know, and then he went and tested that and, and then there wasn't. And then he realized that, okay, well, if I test something right next to the red portion where infrared would be, you know, and then go a little farther, you know, he got a different reading, you know, and it was consistent all the time. And I understand that the observation didn't tell him that, like, you know, red alert, that's infrared light. But to to act like him observing that didn't give him an idea that, hey, something exists here. We think we, you know, I wouldn't say it's self-evident. And I understand, like, you know, I'm reading too much into it in a sense. But, like, I don't see how that observation doesn't tell you that, hey, there is some invisible force here that you need to investigate and quite and quite frankly it's probably related to all the spectrum of light that you're seeing you know so i know that observations don't tell us what the theory is but observations really give us a good idea of what to look at and obviously we're a person that has explanations and we're trying to develop theories but sometimes i feel like it's quite self-evident what these things are telling us to look for in a sense. You get what I'm saying? It's it's hard for me to word it in a way that doesn't say, what you are telling us that observations are telling
0: us what the theory is. But let me give you a really straightforward example of what I think you're saying. Okay. So let's, I often get out away from science and I use like a murder mystery instead because I, I, that's just different enough. Right. So I come in and I see this person who's dead and there's this knife in their back and you know the the butler's fingerprints are the only pearson's fingerprints on the knife okay in a certain sense to try to say that that observation told you nothing and it's and it's theory laden and really you only use it to have take existing theories and test between them that's bizarre right i mean like obviously the first thing I think of when I see that knife in the person's back is a, that's the murder weapon. And when I see that it's the Butler's fingerprints on it, it's, this is the Butler's knife and he did it. Right. (laughs) And so to to suggest that I only used this observation to take theories that I have and to test between them, like it, I have to like, I can figure out a way to make it say that, but I, I have to like twist myself in knots. I might as well just say, look, this observation suggested that the butler did it right. And and basically confirms that the butler did it unless someone can show me some other explanation that I can't think of right now, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so I, I understand exactly what you're saying is that the way they often talk about this they're missing just how powerful observations actually are in in the actual way we use them in real life, right? And so, uh, anyhow, I, I, before I say too much more, I actually would like Peter's take on this. I was just trying to sharpen Mark's point with the example of the knife.
1: Well, I again, I I, I find it. I hear what you're saying, but I find it to be quite a profound point in a way that. That obser- that science really is about explanation and not uh, observation. I mean, there's enough observations in this room to, you know, to do in- virtually any th- to to progress science a, a, a thousand years or, or a million. I mean, there's there's an infinite amount of knowledge that is is just in 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 in, in any observe any a uh, uh, room you, you you're in, but you know, you have to have the right explanation to 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 move science forward. I mean, I think uh I think it's a extremely profound point. I mean, it's certainly not to say that that empirical theories don't matter. I mean, I don't think I don't really see that as his his point that, that or that theories shouldn't be tested with with observations or um but I, I find it to be quite a uh convincing way to look at the world the the theory laden uh, aspect of of yeah. observations
0: so i have mark i'm not sure if you've heard like i have certain podcasts and i've got some that are coming up that aren't published yet too where i've tried to talk about this a little bit the, the one in particular that comes to mind is episode 61 a critical rationalist defense of corroboration
2: was that recent
0: it's fairly recent yeah it's yeah. um three ago, I guess it looks like. And also I would say that I had two episodes on Popper Without Refutations. That'd be episodes 41 and 42, where I I actually no longer, I I consider myself a critical rationalist. And in fact, I even consider myself a critical rationalist that learned everything from Popper, right? But I, I really feel like I strongly disagree with even just the normal consensus view of what Popper was trying to say. Um, to the point where I don't think critical rationalism is primarily about refutation, you know, at least, at least not the way I think it is about refutation, the way Popper meant it. But I think the way people normally think of that term, it isn't. <laughs> and so that's why I actually now advocate for Popper without refutation and kind of a slightly different way. I think more accurate way of looking at, looking at critical rationalism. I, I, I have noticed like I haven't noticed this with Deutsch so much. I feel like Deutsch often just gets, gets things pretty right uh, in with critical rationalism. But Deutsch really in his books he kind of plays this this point of view of observations are just a certain kind of criticism. And really all criticisms critical rationalism is really at its heart accepting all criticisms. And I've seen that the fans of David Deutsch run with that to the point where they will downplay observations in favor of their own personal pet criticisms. And they'll say, Oh, but all criticisms are valid. We shouldn't discount any criticism And I've had numerous ones argue this with me. And it is such a fundamental misunderstanding of popper to the degree where I'm no longer sure they're doing critical rationalism. And I've been planning to do a podcast about that to um, kind of criticize what I see as the kind of, bulk Deutchian critical rationalism, which I think is equivalent to crypto Bayesianism. Like I, I really don't think it's critical rationalism at all anymore. And I think it's kind of getting at the same thing that you're saying, is that you'll often hear the fans of David Deutsch kind of downplay observations to a degree to try to immunize and save their pet theories. And really no longer are seeing things the way that needed to be that the thing that's missing here is that uh, just in a nutshell, I need to like really strengthen this in a separate podcast, but observations are a unique kind of criticism. They're an objective criticism. Whereas what I've noticed is, is that the Twitter critical rationalists in particular is that they really prefer subjective criticisms. They really don't like objective criticisms. They come up with ways to get rid of them. And they want to be able to declare this theory, the best theory based on their own kind of gut feel over how they feel about a, a subjective criticism. And I do think that that has kind of taken hold in that culture. And I think it's bad. I think it's something that's going to need to be corrected. Um, and really, I don't think Popper was wrong about this. And I don't think that Deutsch was wrong about this. But I do think that it, that the way Deutsch worded things did lend itself to this kind of uh, anti-critical rationalist stance that captures the language of critical rationalism without the spirit of critical rationalism. And I, I think that this is tied to what you're talking about, Mark, where they often do kind of just like when you start to talk about, well, we need an empirical theory. They'll say, well, that's empiricism. Well, no, it's not. It's got nothing to do with empiricism. Like there is reasons why science prefers empirical theories over non-empirical theories. It's because that means the theory is specific enough and to use the Deutsche term, hard to vary enough, although I could be critical of that term, that it has gotten to the point where we can actually let nature determine Um, between theories at this point. And when you want to advance an alternative theory and you haven't yet made it testable to the point where it can be experimented through a critical, through a, um, a crucial test, then your theory is not ready for prime time. As far as a scientist is concerned, this has actually been my main criticism of your wife's theories, by the way, Mark is that they haven't been turned into testable theories. That doesn't make them wrong but it means that they're not really ready for prime time yet. And this is really what I think Popper was trying to say. He was trying to create this demarcation between the types of theories that have reached the point where they can be empirically tested and the types of theories that haven't. And the goal is to try to get them over the line if you can. You can't always get them over the line. But if you can get them over the line, you need to figure out how to make your theory specific enough that it actually says something meaningful about reality and you can now test it. And then the criticisms are now objective, because anyone can test it, anyone can try it, intersubjective. He sees the objectiveness of science as coming from the intersubjective nature of tests. I thought your
1: your airplane example before really hammered this home. The kind of theories you want to, to go into designing your airplane versus the kind of theories that are more like... I'm just throwing out interesting ideas, right? I, I, thought, Philosophical I mean, there's nothing theories. wrong. There's nothing wrong theories. with that, right? But you know, they are different kinds of theories. They are
0: right, yeah. and this is really what the demarcation criteria was supposed to be with Popper. It was actually trying to, in essence, say empirical theories are special, and here's why. And that's been lost entirely with the the Twitter, <laughs> the Twitter critical rationalists. I I I don't get any sense that they see empirical theories as special anymore. Um, and whenever I have a conversation with them, they'll always say, well, my theory has got a better explanatory theory than yours. And it's like, yeah, but it makes no predictions, So it's not the right kind of explanatory theory that counts, right? It's it's one that accepts all outcomes. It's one that accepts any possible set of data. It's exactly what we mean by bad explanation. Um, and I, I, I guess I agree with Mark if what he's really getting at is that, that we have gotten to the point where we are significantly downplaying the specialness of empirical theories and why observations are the gold standard for criticism. (laughs) And there is no equivalent, maybe logic, maybe... Being a logical contradiction could be an equivalent gold standard. I could probably think of a few similar examples that aren't strictly experimental observations, but there there's not many, right? I mean, like there is a reason why science makes progress by moving everything to be an empirical theory and then tests it and tests between theories using actual experiments, and that is why science has turned into this giant output of of knowledge that continually churns out stuff and we just keep getting better with it. Whereas philosophical theories that can't be tested, they all sit around forever and we debate them forever. We still have people debating Aristotle's metaphysics, right. And, and who are still advocates for it. And there's just no way to ever separate the wheat from the chaff because we can't figure out how to make a theory like that, get over the line into the empirical camp. So I, I think, Mark, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think I actually think you're getting at something that's a completely valid criticism here, but I would put it the way I just put it. It's not that it's not that there's anything strictly wrong with criticism over observation. It's not that observation isn't ultimately about selecting between theories because that that is going to turn out to be true once you really understand it. But I do think that observation is experimental observation is the gold standard of criticism Period, end of story.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with much anything you've had to say on that at all. But yeah, I just feel that sometimes observations do really push us in a direction. Like, you probably should look more into this situation right here. And obviously, it doesn't tell us what the theory is. But I don't know what Herschel would have thought that that possible heat source would have been other than something related to the electromagnetic spectrum of light, Right. you know? And like, so I, I just... I know the theory didn't tell on that but like that's how powerful that observation is and if anyone with a, a brain would could possibly deduce that from that you know it's it's not like a leap you know it's not like oh i have a theory and i'm going to conjecture that infrared light exists no it already kind of conjectured that for him in, in a sense i know i'm i'm reading way too much into it and you could easily pick apart what i just said and i haven't formulated a great way to describe that but
0: so I think I can I think I can agree with you on this. Uh let me let me put this in a little bit different way that maybe would be more acceptable to a critical rationalist. I I do think that it's not true that we always have explicit theories and that we're testing between explicit theories. And I, Popper n- not only never says that but he says the opposite of that, right? He talks about how um a problem shows up, we have this observation and it startles us. Okay? Well, we may have no specific explicit Scientific theory that said you should not have that observation. But the very fact that it's startling, this is Popper. I, I don't have the quote handy, but he actually said this, right? I'm not making this up. The very fact that we are startled or we're surprised or that it, it just isn't what we were expecting implies that we had some sort of nascent theory that just got violated. And that is that observation did just refute that nascent theory, even if though it had never been turned into an explicit scientific theory, okay? And so when you understand um, a refutation, a Popperian refutation, the way I believe they need to be understood, which would be a, a violation of any sort of theory, um, it's a counterexample, and then it, it really violates the collection of theories together, not any one particular theory okay? And then it, it basically creates a problem. A refutation is really a problem, not a refutation, if that makes any sense. It, it, the only thing it ref- refutes is the giant sum total of your, of your theories in your head or expectations in your head. That's all it refutes. And then it's up to you to now figure out specifically what aspect of your knowledge w- was refuted. It makes sense that in some cases, those observations would be so good at eliminating different aspects of your theoretical system that's in your head, that it would almost feel like it was just suggestive of a theory, right? And the example of the the fingerprints on the knife, right? To try to put that into Popperian terms, in a certain sense, before you found that knife and found the fingerprints, you didn't have any particular reason to favor any one person over another. Maybe you had reasons because it had to be someone that was local. Like maybe you thought it's going to have to be someone who was on the estate at the time, but you, you didn't have, there was many different possibilities at that point. And then as soon as you see those fingerprints, a lot of those possibilities just vanish and it's in, yes, to say, yes, it suggests it's the butler. You know, it doesn't mean absolutely it's the butler. It could be that somebody's setting the butler up or something like that. You know, somewhere in the back of your mind that it's not absolute proof of this theory. But yes, it just ruined so many theories at the same time and left one left that we might as well just use the language, the observation suggests the butler did it or the obse- or this is evidence that the butler did it. And we know that's, basically what it means, right? Unless someone can come up with an alternative. And that's why I I don't get so caught up in trying to reword everything in in terms of negativist language. I think positivist language is often just accurate because you're always talking about comparison of theories. And so I think that kind of fits your example with the infrared light. Yeah, of course, an observation can function against your theoretical system in your head in such a way that it's very suggestive of where you need to start conjecturing new theories. And in some sense, that observation suggested the new theory. That's even an accurate statement in my mind.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess some people might point to, you know, the absolute truth thing is always being something we never have, but that's, that's always the case. So, I mean, if that's the critic, if that's the criticism of anything you had to say, then like, well, (laughs) I guess knowledge is impossible, you know, not, and I don't believe that, but you mm-hmm. know, that, that, that can't be the criticism, you know? Um, Yeah. It, and I, I do have a strange thing too, because a lot of times, you know, we'll, we we'll say that, well, our observations tell us nothing is we we conjecture something and then we go look for it. But sometimes when we create theories, we don't look for new observations. We already have observations that are needed. You know, when, when Kepler went to Tycho Brahe or, I'm not exactly sure I hear his name pronounced different all the time, um, that, as far as T- I hear Tycho Brahe, anyways he wanted his observations he wasn't going to conjecture anything, he wanted his, all, all his observations so he could create some new way to discover like, why the planets are in the positions they are you know, I don't even know if at, at the time, like Kepler's, I mean, of course, once he came up with the ellipses, you could do new things with it but he was literally trying to fit all the observations into a theory and i feel like there's a there's big differences between collecting observations that you already have and then trying to get a f- theory to fit that versus coming up with a theory and then going out and testing that there is. you know and, and i feel like in in my new version of what induction and deduction possibly could be i would say that those would be the two ways that how I would frame those two things. If I'm going to say those are meaningful at all, that would be how I would say it where you have all these observations and you fit a theory to, to, to fit those observations similar to what Max Planck did with the black body problem or with like Kepler did, or you have something, you know, where, Hey, I think this might exist and let's go look for it, you know, and there's big differences in those. And I feel like, Not enough credence is given to the times that people came up with really incredible theories just off all the observations they had. And obviously once you formulate something, well, maybe, you know, if this is the case, then there must be another planet outside Uranus, you know, maybe Pluto is tugging on it, you know, or something like that, you know, and there you have it. And then you can run away with it. But, you know, that's, that's always the case with everything we deal
0: with. So I actually think you bring up a good point. So there's this famous, Sherlock Holmes quote about how he doesn't, he doesn't conjecture who did it until he's collected the observations. He's collected the evidence or something to that effect. Right. And I, I, sometimes you'll see critical rationalists take issue with that. that That's wrong. It's not wrong. (laughs) I mean, it really isn't wrong. Okay. That's what you would actually want is you would want an investigator to go into this, not with a preconceived notion of who did it and instead try to just collect evidence and then, wait until there's quite a bit of evidence and then try to figure out the theory from there. Now, does this violate critical rationalism? Not in my mind, at least not the kind of critical rationalism that I believe in, but I do think it violates the kind of pop critical rationalism that you often find online. And so I think it's a good example from, from that standpoint. Um, The truth is that we often do. I mean, like, you have to make somewhat of a difference here between I made a conjecture and it's a conscious conjecture and what the brain's doing. (laughs) I mean, the brain has to be making subconscious conjectures. So if you were to collect a bunch of, of observations of planets, and then you're trying to figure out, you know, what, what's the pattern, I'm going to have no preconceived notion. It's a circle versus an ellipse versus something else. You know, I'm just going to collect those observations. Well, that makes sense. And then your brain's still going to have to find a pattern. The, the observations by themselves aren't the pattern, but your brain's going to try to find it. And so I think at some different level of knowledge-making, you still have some sort of conjecture and refutation, or maybe that's not even the best term, variation and selection process going on, um, evolutionary epistemology process. And that is still happening, but it may be entirely subconscious and calling that induction may not be the worst thing in the world. I've, I've argued that what induction really is, is critical rationalism, right? That induction was never wrong to begin with. It was critical rationalism that I, I, that statement probably requires a lot more explanation than I can give in this podcast. And I'm planning to eventually do a podcast where I'll talk about it more, but, um, Popper never really claimed, um, strictly speaking that, uh, he suggested that his theory could be called induction. It was the way in which induction took place. There's a certain sense in which he proved the existence of induction rather than refuted induction. It depends on what you mean by induction. He refuted a certain theory of induction, but he showed that the basic idea that you can reason from observations to a theory that that actually works and that conjecture refutation is how it works. So from a certain viewpoint, I think that's exactly why it just makes perfect sense to, to go out and collect observations and not have a preconceived notion first. And I think that's actually very consistent with the way uh, uh, the correct view of critical rationalism works.
1: I have a question for for Mark. Um, sure. do, you, do you see, do you read Popper as more uh, ex- advocating for a... Uh, attitude or a um, methodology because i think i might come down at least how i read him as sort of a, uh, a layman obviously is is more of a, a an attitude advocating for a certain attitude towards life and and science too obviously and and reason and rather than okay you do this then this and this and then you're gonna make scientific progress you know
2: yeah it's that's a good question and I don't know. I, I, I feel like he is probably more methodology than attitude. I, I feel like it's better read as attitude, probably, than methodology. Hmm. And it, It's strange because I often hear Deutsch say, and maybe Popper said, that there is no scientific method. But quite often I hear them say, first you start off with the problem. I'm like, well, hold up. If there's no scientific method, why are you telling me what the first step is? Because it sounds like if you have to start off with something, that sounds like a method. So I've hmm. always been kind of critical of that. So and
0: I have always, of, cons- go ahead. Students of Popper, by the way, absolutely consider his a method, a, a methodological approach to science. So like th- there's um, Margaret on, on your Facebook page. She actually said Popper did himself no favors by claiming that science wasn't a methodology.
3: <laughs>
0: wow. um, if you actually read what Popper said about that, I think in context, what he actually says is not science isn't a methodology, but that um, there is no there is no mechanical method by which you can create knowledge, that instead you have to do it through the method of conjecture and refutation. And I also think that Popper is, without a doubt, methodological, in how you go about refuting things. it's He says nothing about the method of conjecture. I don't think he even believed there was a method of conjecture. Um, it, it's something we understand so little that you just do it and we don't know how. But in terms of how you go about actually refuting theories, that is the method of science. And so there is a scientific method. This is my read of Popper. There is a scientific method in terms of how you refute theories, but there is not a scientific method for how you conjecture theories. And that's that's what I think he was actually saying.
1: And it sounds like Mark, you see it more as a uh method too, but it's just a, a the wrong method. Well
2: I, I don't really consider I would say popper reads like a method. I, I will I will kind of say there probably isn't any scientific method in a sense, but I'm not going to pretend like there aren't a lot of things we can use that will help us navigate through this process, you know. Because we talk about, oh, the, the problem of induction or the myth of induction, you know. And yeah, it has problems, but you know, deduction has problems as well. And I don't, I don't throw that out with the bathwater either. You know, there's there's all kinds of problems with how we create knowledge, you know. And you, you can get r- really hardcore to metaphysical with this stuff, and um you end up sitting there, you just like, well, I don't believe anything anymore. But, you know, obviously I'm talking to you guys on this zoom call right now, using all kinds of theories that we've used and Hey, we're doing stuff. Right. And if I believe that reality is a thing, you know, something's happening with all of our theories. We're, we're, we're doing something with this stuff. So obviously we're making things work. And sometimes, you know, I, I think we get too caught up with this. I feel like some people think like, you know, if it wasn't for Karl Popper, I wouldn't know how to think. And I'm like, well, hold up though, man. Like, Karl Popper didn't invent <laughs> the idea of trial and error, you know, and quite often it's like, I think Popper's great. You know, I, I, I do, but quite often I think like, okay, come on, man. He didn't create trial and error. You know, like, I don't know if they, he was, he's one of the first that really owns the first, but he really formulated it well, you know, but it's like anybody with a brain knows like, Hey, this is how I might be able to make this contraption. Hey, let me go see if it works. Oh no, it didn't work. Well, it must be something wrong with it. Let me try again. Like, <laughs> It didn't take some philosopher of science to come up with that. You know, I mean, like we've been doing trial for error, trial by in error since we've been, you know, eight ape, ape men, like, you know, for lack of better words, well, you know. So I, I, I feel like a lot of this stuff is interesting to talk about as far as epistemology goes. And I believe you mentioned this in your podcast about uh, cooperation recently that a lot of people are saying they're doing it this way, but they're really doing that. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. They're still progressing science in a way. So I think we get hung up on all this epistemology talk, but we're all doing this stuff and we're making things happen. Go ahead, Bruce.
0: Well, so I, I agree with you what, what, with what you're saying. There is only one method of, I mean, like human beings have forever done things in terms of criticism right? Criticism is not something we've invented recently. <laughs> I mean, like, that'd be silly, right? You reason by conjecturing ideas and criticizing them. That, well, I me mean, sometimes is... the
2: criticism could be the observation or the criticism is just like, hey, I tried to create that's right. a bike and, and it didn't roll down the hill. Right. You know, you didn't need someone to tell you that. It, it, criticism was in the test, you know, in a that's sense. Cr- so like, that's right. I feel so, like trial and error is almost even the better way so, to talk about it. Go ahead.
0: You're right. So evolutionary epistemology is a generalization of Popper that uh, Carl, uh, Donald Campbell um, coined the term. And Car- Karl Popper strongly endorsed the theory, but evolutionary epistemology is variation and selection, basically. So it's the generalization of conjecture and and refutation, or what we might say conjecture and criticism could even be considered a a broader form refutation being like an experimental refutation criticism being any kind of criticism, including experimental refutation. And then variation selections, a generalization of that, right? That is how people think they can't not, they can't think, they can't reason in some other way. Okay. And this is, this is one of the reasons why when people talk about, Oh, the positives, you know, the Bayesians believe in com- confirmation and that's impossible. It's like, look, it's impos. If it's impossible, then the Bayesians can't believe it, can they? You know, they may be using the the word confirmation, but they can't literally mean it. And in fact, if you actually, I was this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the show before we started recording. If you actually work out the mathematics of Bayesian reasoning, it's exactly the same as variation selection or conjecture and criticism, right? I mean, it's you may call it the word confirmation, but it's still going to be actually a form of conjecture and refutation, because that is just the only way to do it. So from a certain point of view, it doesn't even make sense to criticize these other viewpoints as they're wrong because they believe in confirmation. You have to dig down to what they mean by the word confirmation and show them, look, what you really mean is this. (laughs) And it's because of that, I think that... um, a lot of the debates in philosophy over epistemology are a waste. You know, it's, everybody's just talking past each other and we should just probably dig a little deeper and we can see that there's actually quite a bit of overlap between the different theories. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not, you know, Bayesian epistemology, I'm not in their camp. They get certain things clearly wrong, right? That I think critical rationalism corrects. But I don't think that they're strictly... Entirely at odds with each other, either. I think that there's a translation you can do between them where you find out that they've actually got heavy, 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 heavy overlap between the epistemologies. And then I think critical rationalism is the one that's more accurate of the two. So I it's from that point of view, what did Popper invent then, right? Since everybody has forever been doing conjecture and criticism, then what is it that he brought to light? Well, that's an interesting question, and probably beyond the scope of this podcast, but I think the most important one of the most important ones is he figured out what made empirical theory special. He figured out that there's a certain kind of criticism. That's an experiment and how you use that to eliminate competing theories. And that's how you actually reason from observation to theory. And basically through the concept of refutation, where you find problems with the theory and you eliminate them and you you're left with whatever theories left. I think that's something nobody had noticed that that they were doing all along. And that was why science was special compared to philosophy. Honestly, compared to philosophy, science is special. (laughs) This is probably going to offend philosophers, but I think it's the truth anyhow, that the reason why philosophy kind of forever stays mired in conversations and science keeps moving on is because science crosses that special line where now the theory's to the point where you can actually use empirical tests on them. And I think that's actually what Popper discovered. It's one, He did a whole bunch of things. There's so many things Popper did, you can't really boil it down to one thing. And I don't think it was actually the whole negativist uh, positive divide. was. I don't think that was nearly as important. I think that that turned out to be an important point. But uh, I think that I almost turned into a negative because now people are, if you're a Popperian, you all, you you react to people's language rather than to what they're saying. And I think that's a problem. And that's I call that the Popperian war on words, right? Where somebody says, oh, well, there's evidence for this theory. And they'll react to that phrase, totally missing the fact that it's a correct phrase, the way it was used, you know, let's the example I've used is medicine. You're trying to test if the impact of a medicine was due to the medicine or if it was just placebo effect. Okay. And then you do this giant experiment and then you say, oh, well, we have evidence for that. The medicine works. You're only testing two ob- two theories. You've intentionally got it down to two theories. The Having somebody react and say, oh no, you can't say it's evidence for the medicine and which I've seen Popperians do. It's just stupid, right? Because the, there was only two theories. It, you, okay, great. Call it instead. It was evidence against the theory that it didn't work. That's <laughs> so awkward. You might as well just say it's evidence for the theory and we all know what you mean. And I do think we get this Popperian war on words where they, they read Popper at too surface a level and they see it as positive versus negative language, When that really wasn't what he was talking about. He was actually talking about why empirical spirit theories are special and how this unifies all knowledge creation through evolutionary epistemology. At least that's my take.
2: Yeah, I think some of the more interesting things Popper has to say are in some of the footnotes of some of his greater texts sometimes, or at least maybe and maybe that's the part like, hey, I don't understand what he means by this. He certainly can't mean this, and then then he kind of gives an explanation for it. Like, okay, there—that's—that's that's what I wanted to hear. Because right. sometimes he—he he does seem like when you read him as a na- naive fallibilist, in a sense, you know. And I don't—he doesn't really—he's really not that. But you kind of have to dig kind of deep sometimes to see that, or you know, the de-car- demarcation between science and non-science, they're empirical versus non-empirical, and you know, people want to just drag that down to you too. And you know, that's—it's a little more subtle of an argument than people. Than people think. I agree. Um,
0: and I, I do feel like Popper sometimes does himself no, no service, right? I think sometimes he has picked language. I think he usually has had reasons why he picked that language. But I think that ultimately, like the word refutation, I just, after having so many people misunderstand Popper on this point, I, I it's, it would be hard for me to say that I think the word refutation was a good word. I think it was a terrible word. I think that he should not have used it, right? It's because it so much means that you can by observation directly with one observation, you can refute a theory and that never happens and it never will. <laughs> it just It just isn't the way things work, right? And so much of the debate around Popper is, well, that can't be true. And it's like, you know what? He never even said it to begin with, but he did. It sounds like he said it. You read him and it sounds like he said it. And that's why everyone's confused. So I think it was a bad choice of words. Could
1: we dig down on what, uh, what a, the difference between a naive fallibilist and a fallibilist is?
2: Well, I guess, na- I guess naive fallibilist would be that one single refutation of any theory would be a, you know, a complete refute. Well, yes. <laughs> I guess I'm, a tautology in a sense would, would disprove that theory, I guess I would say, I, you know, I, I, I think that would be naive fallibilism, you know, and, and, you know, like a naive realist, I guess, right? You believe that we can get absolute truth or something c- like that. Could c- we call
0: it a naive refutationist, maybe?
2: Either way, you want to frame it, it's fine with me, as long as yeah. the same words for the definition are there.
0: <laughs> so but, I, I think that that is how most people read Popper. is that with a single, ref, single observation, you can entirely refute a theory. And I think that is just false, because it's always that you refute the theory plus the background knowledge.
2: Well, then, if all theories are, ob- ob- are ob- if all observations are theory laden, man, we got a big problem there because <laughs> you have to you have to use a theory to refute a theory and then refutes all the background knowledge theories, but you use all your background knowledge theory to have the theory laden observation. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of problems in that, and and I think Popper has a lot of stuff to say, and I don't I don't mean to like endorse instrumentalism, but at the end of the day, if I can talk to you on a Zoom call with all this technology we're doing something right, you know? And like, I'm not saying it's imaginary. I think that there's a lot of real things that are happening, but like at the end of the day, I care about having zoom calls, you know, more, more than I do about the reality of certain things. You know, obviously this is a real conversation, you know,
0: you know, I have argued on my blog back when I had a blog that um, I am often an instrumentalist, right? I mean, I, I, I don't see instrumentalism as a, entirely false theory any more than I see induction as an entirely false theory. I, I see, um, Karl Popper's theory as having a strong instrumental instrumentalist bent even to it. A lot of times when I want to use a theory, maybe I don't care what the reason is. I just know the theory works. And that makes sense to me. Right. And it's hard to believe that that isn't even in a common thing that takes place. Um, and I, I don't see Popper as even denying that, right? He he'll often say, Well, of course it's an instrument, you know, of course, you know, we care about prediction. And um, I think instead the right way to read Popper there as is as subsuming these other philosophies. He explains why instrumentalism was largely true. He explains why um, inductivism was largely true. He explains why positivism or logical positivism were largely true. And that's actually how I see Popper's theory.
2: I feel that it's probably very important to play some really dark, brooding music in the background when you start talking about instrumentalism, because this seems the heretical section of this podcast for, for, for Jewish people um, <laughs> to, to make a joke out of it. But, but yeah, I, i yeah. I think the, the, the criticism of instrumentalism that I feel is that important is that, you know, some hardcore instrumentalists will say that we can't say anything about reality, you know, and that the reality, is, That's right. you know, I, am not sure if it's, I think it's bored that, you know, that, that, the, that the, the, the real world is made made out of imaginary things, you know, I mean, I might as well start using healing crystals if I believe that, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I it's, I would say I might be somewhat akin to instrumentalism as far as like, I care, like I said, like if your theory makes, you know, iPads and zoom calls possible. Hey, I'm willing to accept it, you know, of anything, but you know, it's not like, I don't think that, you know, we have theories about dinosaurs, right? <laughs> I'm going to say that dinosaurs absolutely existed. And, you know, and here I go. Well, you can't say anything absolutely true. I know I can't say it, but, I'm going to say it anyways, you know, and it's almost like girdle with mathematics, right? So the incompleteness theorems and all of a sudden, well, now we can't even say that, you know, two plus two equals four, you know, but I I believe girdle says something that, you know, we can't prove things in mathematics, but there are some things that we know that are true, you know, and obviously this is not something that you want people that make policy decisions that say "Oh, i just have a gut feeling that this is absolutely true you know this isn't something i want to drive home to everybody to say that you know they're just we just think they're true because of that but I, I i think you know when we're talking about like girdle we we understand what he's saying about like mathematics and stuff like that there are certain things that we know that are true that we just can't prove like i think that we know dinosaurs existed you know Obviously, I don't know if T-Rex had feathers or if it was purple or if it cared for its young. You know, we have some evidence for some of these type of things. But to think that large organisms lived on this planet many millions of years ago, I'm saying, yeah, that really happened, you know, and I, I can't prove it. But I, I think both of you would agree that, yeah, we th- these things that we can't prove, but we know that they are true. Right? Am I saying con- something controversial here? I don't. I don't think that I am. Yeah, not to me. And obviously there's no formulation of how to get that way. And that's and that's the problem, you know. And I feel like Popper presented a lot of problems we have in this epistemology. But at the end of the day, you know, Popper's epistemology doesn't solve these problems of me being able to say that dinosaurs really existed. And sometimes I guess if me and Bruce sound like we're somewhat sympathetic towards instrumentalists, the the, the thing is instrumentalist sometimes does it work yeah it does okay good that's all we care about you know and like you know sometimes that's unfortunately as as good as it gets as far as jack nicholson said in the movie or something you know i mean yeah i I don't know but sometimes i feel like kind of almost i want to say nihilistic but it's just it's horrible that we can't find absolute truth and prove it you know but i'm doing stuff and it's not like i don't think so I guess the distinction between me and instrumentalists is I do think things are real, you know? And I think that's the important distinction we would have on
0: that. Peter, do you want to respond to that? Well, I honestly,
1: it sounds like we're agreeing a lot here <laughs> more than anything. So I, I guess that's good, but maybe we should move on to the next, uh, next criticism and we can, can well, see where it goes. Actually,
0: let, let me just bring up what, something that he just said, because a couple things, first of all, I do feel like Popper's theory completely handles being able to say dinosaurs existed, right? Cause that is the sole remaining empirical theory. There just aren't any others. So I don't actually think that, and we tentatively embrace that. So I don't actually think there's any particular problem under Popper's epistemology to be able to draw conclusions. Secondly, Popper doesn't say we can't, we can't get to truth, right? I mean, Deutsch has said that a number of times, but I'm not even sure I know why that would be the case. Like, we absolutely can have a correct theory about whether George Washington existed or not, right? I mean, there's all sorts of theories that we can we can. I I think when Deutsch brings this up, he usually uses physics, and I I admit maybe we'll never have a completely true theory of physics. Okay, or maybe we will. Like, I don't see any particular reason why we couldn't. Um, Maybe that's hard to believe, but I think there's all sorts of theories out there that we can we can not only they are going to be, we can be right or wrong about, and therefore they're true or not. They're not just misunderstandings, but I think we can even feel very confident about it because there just isn't a good alternative theory available at this point. So I I don't actually think critical rationalism denies any of that. I think what's maybe a better example to mark is something like Okun's Law. Are you guys familiar with Okun's Law? No. So Okun's (laughs) Law is an economic law that describes a relationship between a country's gross domestic, gross domestic product product and the unemployment rate it says that you have to, we must grow, um, at a 4% rate for, for one year to achieve a 1% reduction in the rate of unemployment. From what I understand, it has no explanation, right? It's just something that he noticed and it's not always true, but it's often true. And, um, people economic, uh, People who are economists will actually use the law to make predictions, very instrumentalist, even though they don't know why the law works. Um, And it works often enough that it makes sense to use it in this instrumentalist way. So I do think that we do have to accept what I said before. There's really no such thing as a truly explanationalist explanation. The very fact that I'm saying there is some sort of connection, that is an explanation. It's just not a deep one. However, I think this does border on sounding very instrumentalist, right? And I would never tell you, don't use this law just because it doesn't have a, a explanation.
2: <laughs> well, you, you get these type of examples in e- economic policy all the time. You know, and, you know, it's it's one of those, you know, if I had to make a distinction in hard and soft science, my only distinction really is the amount of variables that are there. So, you know, e- economies, there, there are so many variables that, that affect economy. You can you can predict all you want, but, you know, if something like a little virus, you know, happens to happen in China somewhere, you know, I don't care what, what patterns you thought were happening, <laughs> it did a lot of things that economic well-being of a lot of countries, you know, and um, the problem with the economic policy, the theories are too is people take these and they believe in them. And then, you know, if they believe that stocks are cyclical and blah, 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 and, you know, this th- th- tends to follow this pattern. If enough people believe in that, they will make that pattern happen because they believe it and they trade in it and buy it and sell it in such a way that it's kind of like a s- self um what's the word i'm looking for self um geez <sighs> lost
0: for Self-ful, words here self-fulfilling self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: Fulfilling for yeah yeah pro- yeah prophecy like, there we go thank you um that that it it does happen you know and so it's it's really hard on e- economic policy as far as theories go on, on that aspect yeah um but yeah i don't know i feel like popper though would say that we can never have absolute truth though. It's 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 tricky because we talk about you know, people say, Well, we have more truth. Well, you know, then people say, Well, capital T truth or small t truth or but you know
0: Popper, Popper Popper actually does say we can have true theories. He just says that we can't know that they're true.
2: So kind of in a sense of the, the girdle quote I kind of referenced earlier, right? There's yeah. things in mathematics that we can't prove. It's the provability problem, I guess, is the right. word we're looking for, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah.
0: Now, Deutsch, Deutsch seems like he disagrees with that, by the way. But I, I could actually find you actual quotes from Popper where he says that. In fact, he, he in one of the interviews we did a podcast on, he actually says, there are certain theories that I think are totally correct, but I won't tell you which ones they are.
1: Can I let me see if I can work through this in my mind? So, so Popper believed advocated for, uh, various similitude, mm-hmm. whereas truth is something that we move closer to. Yes. Whereas Deutsch, from what I understand, sort of criticizes that that approach because it it implies the objective the existence of some absolute truth that we're moving towards. So to Deutsch, it's more about just just better explanations that are moving towards
0: I'm honestly n- not infinity. sure. I'm honestly not sure I could articulate jo- Deutsch's view entirely. Okay. So I, I'm confused myself as to what his his view is. I some of what like Sam I've talked with Sam Kuypers about this and I've debated him kind of on your Facebook page. Okay. If Sam Kuypers is typical of Deutsch, then I think that comes pretty close to what you just said. But I'm I'm not actually sure if Sam for was... himself Popper, yeah.
1: pretty, did he invent the idea of verisimilitude, or he, at least was a primary well, advocate for I it? I
0: don't think he invented the term verisimilitude, yeah. but yeah, he's the one yeah. who introduced it into epistemology, from what I understand. Okay. okay. So just, just to clarify, Deutsch does say things like, we should refer to all theories as misunderstandings, which... Like, if you're talking about physics, I could probably buy that. But like the theory, whether George Washington existed or not, you know, bullcrap. I mean, <laughs> you're either right or you're wrong, right? And we even know whether you're right or you're wrong for all intents and purposes because of the way it's only the only surviving theory left is that George Washington's a real person, right? Nobody's actually advocating for him being fictional. Well, um, I mean,
2: he, he can always come up with things like, well, can you prove that this is not a dream? You know, or solipsism, or, you know, can you believe, can you prove that you're not just some Boltzmann brain that's like, that just popped in the vacuum of space that dreamed of George Washington existing where he's really just a of mirror? Mean, you have to get really crazy for that type of stuff, you know, and like those are all those are all criticisms, I guess, but I don't really.
0: So those are all justification, though. Right. No, I can't prove it. But so what? Right. That's kind of the critical yeah. rationalist answer is no, I don't know for sure that george washington's a real person and i don't care he is a real person that that is my best theory that that's kind of the answer to the to those kind of out there criticisms
2: well i think that maybe the best i think the best maybe criticism for the out there criticisms if if you're if your criticism is that you know well you can't say that he exists because we're just living in a simulation that you can never really truly prove that you're ever outside of that simulation right so if you if you prove that you're in a simulation, then all of a sudden, how do I know I'm not in a simulation again the second time, you know? And it's just some type of, it's just like some <laughs> turtles all address. the way down. Right. It's a turtles down all the way down death trap, you know, and where it's, it's, I guess it's explanatory in some aspect, but you can never get out of it. And if you can never get out of that hole, well, what it, is it, it really telling you? You know what I mean? So I, I don't It's criticisms like that, even though they might be a thing if you can never get out of that hole, I'm not really sure it's a really good criticism.
0: Well, it's 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 not empirical, right? The, the Popper would say, you know, it doesn't even get to across the, the demarcation line. So there's no reason to take it any more seriously than that. A, a lot of explanations get eliminated by that, right? That they're uncriticizable, they're untestable. So you just, there's just no reason to take them seriously. I mean, sure, I guess it's possible that we're in a simulation. I, I'm not, I'm not even ruling that possibility out but I've got no reason to take it seriously as a theory compared to every other crazy theory that we might come up with. And, and even if
2: we were, George Washington was a very real person in a simulation. That's right. right.
0: Or, That's right? right. So
2: I mean it's kinda like it doesn't it, it maybe it, it refutes what you said, but not really. He was That's real right. in your simulation. You know, it's not like I played the video game Elden Ring and Melania didn't exist. She definitely does exist in that
0: video game, even That's though right. it's a video game. It's, it, it, it changes the way I might understand exists, but it's yeah. still a completely legitimate way of understanding the term um, exists. So, yeah. Yep. Okay. Can, so we're, we're kind of getting low on time. I kind of would like to see if we could do some of the tweets that you brought up. Do you have some of those you would like to raise? Oh,
2: sure. The barn burner one I have, it just kind of was jaw dropping to me, you know, Elizabeth dies, you know, and we're ready to crown King Charles and, um, uh, Deutsch basically just tweets is I'm going to pledge my allegiance to his majesty, the King Charles III, whether he likes it or not. And I was just kind of taken aback by that. I mean, it kind of goes against everything I would think that a critical rationalist would have, you know, especially Deutsch's uh, views on the Brexit situation, how they should get out of the European union, but having non-elected members, you know, like it was anti-democratic, you know, and, especially if everything we talks about with how to remove, you know, it, it, when he brings up the whole popper article that he wrote in the Economist about, you know, the important thing is not who should role is how do we remove bad leaders? You know, you know, I, I guess there's ways that we can maybe re- remove King Charles, but you know, there's not too many of them. I don't think, but you know, I don't think the the parliament can have a vote of, you know, of confidence on him or not, but I mean, it's the non-elect, the leader in, I just, a uh, leader in a, quotation marks, I should say, but I don't know how you pledge allegiance to something like that. You know, I, I just, I, I unless he's only pledged allegiance because he thinks it does a lot for tourism and it, and it helps grow, you know, the GDP of um, Great Britain by having the monarchy around, you know, and just for show or, or just for fun. But I, I, I can find no acceptable way to think that is something that we should be proud to accept as pledging allegiance to a king
0: yeah, let me let me I'm not going to respond yet, but let, let me just clarify what you're saying. This is an, a, a, a criticism of the institution of the king, correct? That's what you're saying. Yep okay. what you're really wondering is why is why does Deutsch have this positive view of that institution when it seems like it goes against? the whole Popperian concept of error correction and authority. Right.
2: And yeah. what is what is pledging allegiance really mean in that aspect too, you know, or what are you pledging allegiance to in a sense? But
1: well I think I think that his take would probably look something like if you look back into history that the monarchy has even recent history i think as that you know i don't know if you guys have watched the crown or or know about some of the history in there that it it's done many useful things i i see him as make as sort of a you know a snarky way of making a a case that, that tradition is is valuable and perhaps uh, which which is 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 and. Uh, too and you know Pop Popper uh, defense tradition is a valuable source of of knowledge. I'm not British, so I don't really have quite the same maybe some of the same feelings about the monarchy. So I I kind of hear what you're saying
0: too, um, Mark. But have you guys heard Brett Hall's defense of the monarchy on his podcast? I did. Okay, and I know Mark did because I think I sent it to Mark as one of our conversations. And um, we had some discussion about that, although that was a while ago, so I don't remember entirely what Brett said. But it seems like he used an example of a, a monarchy. I want to say, does does Australia have a monarchy? Like he's Brett's an Australian, so I'm not sure which country it was that he was referring to. But there was,
1: well, they're part of the British common com, Commonwealth, right? So, so, so
0: a monarchy. Uh, there was an elected. There was an elected government. In Australia or somewhere else. And it was known that they were, um, I'm doing off of memory, so I'm going to be getting this wrong. It was known that they were extremists or something. And so the monarchy refused to accept them as a government. And that there was heavy criticism because this was the duly elected democratic government that was getting rejected by an institution that doesn't have a check. And he was arguing that because the monarchy does not make laws, That that this is a valuable institution that we want that saved that country whatever country it was and so he was arguing in favor of the monarchy that because they aren't a legislature they don't make laws but they are an an important tradition counterbalance um, in that democracy that this is an example of. How the monarchy is actually valuable? Am I getting this right, or am I like misremembering something? Because this was a I, long I think time that's ago.
1: that's the case, and yeah, just to just to clarify, Australia is is the British monarchy would be the relevant uh, okay mon- monarchy to to Australia, but yeah, I, th- I think that's right. That there's there the the monarchy kind of functions to provide some stability in society, and I think maybe that's the 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 general argument.
0: Okay, so. I guess I have something positive to say about what Brett's saying and something negative to say about what Brett's saying. And I'm not even sure I have a strong, I have a defined opinion. <laughs> so I would probably say that I'm a conservative. I'm totally in favor of starting with tradition. And for countries where the monarchy is part of the tradition, I can totally see the idea that tradition may have value that we don't understand are you guys familiar with the idea of chesterton's fence where um do you know what i'm referring oh, to yes okay so it's the idea that you have a fence you don't know why it's there so uh the the leftist or the liberal comes and says this fence serves no purpose let's tear it down and the conservative says look if you think that the, the the um, fence serves no purpose, then we should not tear it down. You need to first explain to me what its purpose was and then explain to me why it's okay to tear it down and what we're replacing it with. (laughs) And honestly, that's the way politically I am right. That like I'm not prepared to tear down traditions until I, I feel like we've done our best to really criticize the tradition, but also try to understand why the tradition is there and replace it with something that we think is better and then try it and see if it fails or not and roll it back. From that standpoint, I think I can agree with what Brett is saying um, about the monarchy. And I'm going to assume that's what Deutsch is getting at. Like, Obviously from one tweet, I can't tell that when he says he's pledging his allegiance, he's trying to say something positive about tradition. Well,
1: in a way he was he was really criticizing Prince Charles because I think the, the the context was that Prince Charles was saying... Telling people not not to pledge to
0: allegiance. allegiance, you're right, yeah, you're right. yeah. so, but it, it's i I think I would my natural tendency would be to read Deutsch as being saying something pro-tradition there that, yes, the monarchy serves some sort of useful purpose, and pledging allegiance to the monarchy serves some sort of useful purpose. On the other hand, I can't agree with Brett that the monarchy doesn't make laws. I mean, the very fact that they cannot sit a government. Whatever that example was, that's equivalent to making laws. Like, there's no real strong break between those. Like, we, we talk about legislation, you know, judicial legislation that courts should not make laws. Well, of course, courts do make laws, right? That's what courts do for all intents and purposes. The idea of judicial restraint makes a great deal of sense to me, where they try to do that as conservatively and as narrowly as possible. But to claim that that they don't make laws is to misunderstand what courts are and what laws are. And I guess I feel the same way about the monarchy. Of course they make laws. They may be very limited in what kinds of laws they can make, but for all intents and purposes, if they don't sit a government there, they have now defined a law that certain types of government, even if elected by the people can't be, can't be installed as governments that you, that there's a law for all intents and purposes that you must satisfy the monarchy, that this is a legitimate government that we're going to sit. That's exactly equivalent to making a law. So I can't can't agree with Brett's explanation. I agree with the concept of protecting tradition and that it often is valuable in ways we don't understand. And I, I, I don't have an opinion on whether in that particular case it was valuable or it was a bad thing since I don't even know which country it was (laughs) that we're talking about or what the circumstances were. But I I guess I could be open to the possibility that it plays that role with the right set of facts. I might agree with it, but I, I can't agree with his explanation as to why. And I can see, I guess I can see, I guess I'm now talking myself into saying, I at least agree with Mark that that means that you have an institution that can't, can't, be error corrected. That means that you've got an institution that you, where you can't uninstall the leaders, even if they have super limited, narrow powers, they apparently do have powers. So I'm not sure how to reconcile that. I think you're raising a, a fair point. I, I feel like I've argued both for, for and against it in my response. And I feel stupid that I don't have anything to actually definitively say one way or the other.
1: Well, I, I would say I like Chesterton's fence quite a bit. I, I think it's a compelling idea. And you can especially look at it, how I kind of look at it as the tradition of our, our own country, meaning America, in that many of the founding fathers were actually quite conservative in their temperament, and they were looking closely at what worked in, in different states for, for hundreds of years, whereas you contrast that with the rationalists of the French Revolution, who just wanted to, uh, oh, you know, it just occurs to me that you, we've talked about this before, Mark, and you have quite strong feelings on this. But yeah, the uh, French Revolution, where they they just wanted to, you know, tear things down and tear things down and keep going, and and it didn't uh, didn't turn out so well. So I think the the Chesterton's uh, that the American Revolution is perhaps more in line with Chesterton's fence in in mostly a good way.
0: So just to clarify, it's Chesert- Ches- Chester Chester Chesterton's fence, not Chesterton's fence. Correct with the T, with the I
1: I I don't know. I, you're saying I was saying it wrong. No, no. I think you were. Chester- I think you were.
0: I think you were saying it right. I think okay. I said it wrong. Okay. I think I said Chesterton's fence, and I think you're right that it's Chesterton's fence. It, you know what? I just googled it, and you were right. It is okay. Chesterton's fence. Okay. <laughs>
1: what do you think about about that uh, chesterton's fence mark
2: i don't know if i really have any uh, i i don't really find it that valuable of an insight to be honest with you i don't I okay. have any like strong you know thing to say against it i guess i i don't you know it's funny because me and my wife argue about tradition quite a bit i'm a pretty traditional guy But I'm more of a traditional guy like, hey, we should decorate for Christmas or, you know, we should decorate for (laughs) Halloween, you know, or I think traditions like Groundhog Day are fun, you know, and I think my whole thing on tradition is more of a a thing of what creates fun or a type of like ceremonial thing, you know, it's tradition to do this at this time of year. And every year, I kind of think about where I'm in in the world and this and that. And it kind of, you know there's something important about doing something the same but then how it makes you feel different you know in a sense um but as far as traditions go as like as monarchies and stuff i don't see because i think Deutsch's main support of that was just tradition i think he posted like the mary poppins or something the tradition song over that and I just find that a very poor way to say, oh, that's why tradition. Well, you know...
0: Piddler on the Roof, by the way.
2: Fit, yeah, there you go. Sorry about that. You know, at least... <laughs> I'm glad I didn't say Chesterton's fence wrong. I said Piddler's on the Roof. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! Very pop- I, made the, I made the Mary Poppins reference. wrong. I mean, that's a good correction right there. Very valuable <laughs> correction. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, there's a lot of traditions that are good and bad. I, I just... I, I, my wife is kind of anti-tradition, you know, and they'll talk about the old tradition of criticism. Okay, fine, but that's almost a paradoxical tradition in a sense, you know, but but other than that, I, I feel like tradition holds its place in fun, you know, and there's, you know, you know and, and Deutsch talks a lot about the Enlightenment and stuff, too, and, like, you know, a lot of the rebelling against monarchies are, are very much an Enlightenment thing. I mean, why did why did the u s create an elective governing body? you know it was to get away from the monarchy and stuff you know um it, it's funny because the French Revolution is so interesting because you know obviously the American Revolution was very Thomas Paine was very influential with the American Revolution and he was also very influential with the French Revolution you know they 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 re, like the the American was the common sense writing that he wrote, and the French was the rights of man you know and it, it's just it's crazy how both went at it at different ways, you know, and, you know, America had this thing too of being basically isolated from the rest of Europe, you know, France, you know, was surrounded by monarchies that was putting pressure on it, you know? So there's a lot of different reasons why these things didn't work out. And that's, you know, a very long podcast to talk about that. Um, but I, I just don't see that tradition being a very good reason to why we should continue doing things the way they were, you know? I mean, you could, you could argue a lot of very immoral practices that ended up doing some neat stuff or beneficial stuff that we shouldn't do today, you know? And I, I just don't see how you can really talk about the monarchy of, of Britain being something that we, should, that we should really keep up other than for fun um, or something that we should pledge allegiance to. It just seems completely perverse to me.
0: So let me, let me say this, I guess I don't really understand what value the monarchy has as a tradition. Now I don't live in a country that has a monarchy. So clearly we've, we've gotten along without one, right? (laughs) I I could, I can understand the chest Chesterton's fence argument that we shouldn't just get rid of it, that it should be something that's done very carefully, not just eliminated on the other hand, we have examples of countries that don't have monarchies, such as America, that have been very successful without it. So we we, we at least have a good reason to believe that you can survive without a monarchy, right? You don't need that tradition. So I, I, when I listened to like Brett's defense of the monarchy, I admit that I never really came away with an understanding of what exactly the value was, right? It, it was more like it's valuable. It, it at least once saved us from a bad government. But it wasn't really super clear how it fit as a good check and balance. i I, I didn't see an explanation there. So I, I'm at a loss as to exactly why he was defending the monarchy. And I'm not that doesn't mean he's wrong or I, even that I disagree with him. But I just there wasn't like a clear-cut explanation that I could wrap my mind around and go, oh, that's why we need that tradition if that makes any sense.
2: And they've been a constitutional monarchy for hundreds of years. And the power has been taken away from the monarchy for quite some time. So it's not like, you know, the the, the British Enlightenment was, you know, directly influenced only only by the monarchy, you know. And, you know, and, and Deutsch talks about the monarchy or not the monarchy, about the Enlightenment quite often. But there are other traditions that did some good stuff for us, too, like, you know, like Quakerism in America, you know, a lot of the a lot of the really strong abolitionists were people that had a tradition that I do not subscribe to in any way, shape, or form. But they were very adamantly opposed to slavery, you know, and they had some very religious reasons for that, you know. And there are some Enlightenment figures that were very in favor of slavery and used reason to to be in favor of slavery. And There's obviously other Enlightenment people that didn't. You know, I know William Wilberforce is one of the, more religious people in britain that argue against slavery but i'm not going to sit there and say that well quakerism is an important tradition that we should keep having because you know they helped abolish slavery you know i just you know i i i just don't see the importance of tradition at all in the way that they try to frame Popper and saying it My, my my tradition is almost just literally for fun like i said like Groundhog Day, I feel like, is a fun tradition, you know, a tradition to celebrate Halloween every year or something like that. It's, it's a very fun thing. You know, it's, it's not something that I'm going to pledge allegiance to, you know. Well,
1: how about how about something like a tradition like that? Uh, that a child should be raised in a I don't want to say a mother and father be, um, my point is not to say that nuclear, it nuclear family. To, or it like? has to be, and a nuclear family—a child—the hmm. the, the nuclear family is the best way to raise a child, rather than children just becoming sort of communal, communally raised. Well, I, I, I think that a nuclear family makes a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, now, it might be there are some rationalists now and in, in the past who might who might want to completely abolish that I I think this would be a a, a way where I would uh, uh, apply uh, Chesterton's fence quite strongly and say that that the nuclear family makes a I would straight straight up say the best environment for a child to be raised in I mean it doesn't ma- it doesn't mean we shouldn't question that and think about it but um I think is, there's is, that good ex- a, is that a kind of tradition?
2: It, it is, but I think there's maybe some good explanations for why maybe a nuclear family could be presented as, as a good option in a sense. And I don't even mean just mother, father. It could be father, father, mother, mother, or just, you know, adopted parents or something like that. But, you know, I feel like if you want to increase the, the diversity of a population, having two people or, you know, like, oh, I guess communal, you could say three. Because obviously, like, I was raised by my family, but I was also very influenced by my brother, my brother and sisters as well, too. You know, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we were a commune, but there are other people that helped raise me that I was very influenced by. But you could increase the diversity of a population by having smaller pockets of people help raise children. And the fact of the matter is, too, we also have these communities that we're in that also help raise our children. You go to school, you have neighbors, you know, you, you learn stuff from everybody. It's just quite often your parents, you learn the most from them because you're around them a lot. You know, and I, I feel like this, Nuclear family inside of communities is probably a pretty safe bet to have a good, diverse, but all on the same page type of community that we can work through this world together with. I mean, I feel there's some explanations there.
0: By, by the way, Nicholas Christakis' book, Blueprint, is, has like a whole chapter dedicated to nuclear family versus trying to raise kids communally and why he believes that genetically it doesn't work to do it communally that's a very um evolutionary psychology type approach but
1: mm-hmm. okay should we should we move on to that is there another another uh tweet or criticism we can we can cover here
2: oh i can talk about other stuff yeah um i feel so here recently i guess you know I, sabine or is that hassenfelder has oh, tweeted mm-hmm. some yeah has tweeted some stuff that i actually thought was pretty interesting and um it was her talking about uh, the tweet is it's a big problem with all current democracies that members of the parliament are, are implicitly tasked to evaluate scientific evidence, a job that most of them are unqualified for, you know, and then Deutsch replies who in quotation marks should be tasked with evaluating scientific evidence, physicists, question mark. So how would bad physicists and bad theories be removed? And then he says, question mark, standardized tests. He says, Good heavens, scientists are still perpetuating enough as it is. Give us political power to override the ballot box. No, no, no. But, you know, and I'm not here. I am saying, well, we should have some type of authorities of science. But at the same time, like a lot of our political candidates are not very good at evaluating scientific evidence. And they all have advisors that do this for them. Like, I I don't know what we'll be living where we don't think that we have advisors that talk about that. And quite often, they don't even care what the scientific theory is. They're just trying to push whatever agenda they can. You know, like, you know, in the recent Republican um, debate, you know, no one raised their hand against being a climate change. I think one of the other candidates is or thinks that climate change is real. One of the other candidates does think that climate change is real and think maybe address that later in there. But I mean, there's loads of scientific evidence to saying like, "Hey, something is definitely happening to the climate." You know, that CO2 is likely the culprit of it. You know, I I don't know. Like, it it seems to kind of be like, "Well, how can our political candidates be good at evaluating scientific ideas?" You know, and I'm not saying she should to have some like a uh, what's the word, uh, you know, truth committee or you know, uh. Some weird thing like that that says what's true and not true.
0: Ministry of truth.
2: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Ministry of truth is the words I'm looking for. Not filled around the roof this time, but uh, <laughs> but but yeah, like I, it it always comes down to two. So then, and then I, it's funny because I, I I sent this to Bruce and I said it kind of reminds me of the who should rule type of article that Popper says, and I'm mentioning it again and. Then, as I type that to him and send it, I'm, I'm scrolling down, and there you go. Brett Hole posted the Who Should Rule thing, and David Deutsch liked it. You know, and like, I, I get that in some aspect, but at the end of the day, like, we have to pick somebody to rule, and we have to pick some evidence or some, some theory to go with. You know, it's not always a question about like who should rule or who should remove theories. You know, we got to pick them sometimes, we have to come up with policy. You know, and obviously they're not perfect. So I've never understood why that that is that is such an important thing uh, of the who should rule one, or why we're going to pretend like I'm not saying we have scientific authority, but not not that we're going to say that we're going to pretend that certain people aren't better at explaining certain ideas better than others. I I, I just don't or, get or even just understand
0: them at. better. Yeah.
2: I, I mean, because I it's funny because I, I remember it was um, Trudeau, um, Prime Minister of Canada was talking about, uh, I believe, quantum computers. And he described how they worked and, you know, got a round of applause for him. And I'm sitting there thinking like, well, I would hope he could at least somewhat describe how they work since he was just briefed on his tour to factory or toured something, you know, about it. And then, then Deutsch replied in it saying, well, he didn't quite get it right you know, and, and maybe he didn't, but, but it, it's just, it's strange to hear that stuff because, you know, because yeah, I, I, I don't know where they're coming from on that. I, 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 don't, these people, especially when we know that they have science advisors around them. I feel that this whole pretense that anybody is, can, is just perfectly as good as any other to go through evidence. I, I just don't see it's it. kind of
0: the question of what role does expertise actually actually play in epistemology? Yeah, right. I'm going to have to side
1: with very limited in a way. I mean, I think that this I that's one of the things that I really like about Deutsch and Popper is this idea is this pushback against science scientists as, as philosopher kings that that should rule. Rule us, which seems to be, in some ways, an extremely popular view amongst the NPR listening crowd. I actually think that the 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 expertise, true expertise, is a very limited thing, and it, it you know does exist and should be taken into consideration. But when you have people, uh, a climate chi- a scientist or an epidemiologist or something, proposing policies that affect economics and people working and, you know, all the all this stuff, I think that's a that's a dangerous road to go down. I I really like uh, Feynman's quote, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. And what I get from that is that scientists even or anyone else with expertise are, are quite often capable of making fundamental errors in their uh, ideas about well, even their own field, I would say, and and uh, certainly going outside of that field. I mean, if you're starting on a on um, ideas about especially humans that just aren't true, you know, whether Marxism and behaviorism are two um, go-to examples for me of things that you know that uh, even highly educated people seem to sort of accept. Uh, it, you know, just their conclusions about how to live are just um just don't work at least not for me. Um, so I I really I really like the I, the 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 pushback that these these guys provide against the uh, uh against the the scientists as philosopher king thing. Okay,
2: so I don't completely disagree with what you're saying, Peter. But the 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 thing is, Sabine is truly only saying like that. That they about the members are cannot evaluate scientific evidence. She's not talking about we should have philosopher kings. She's just talking about having scientists interpret evidence for them, Mm -hmm. other than like, then basically some random right wing guy saying that, you know, climate change is a Chinese hoax or something like that, you know? And, And you see this a lot. I mean, we talk about evolution being one of our best theories, right? A lot of those guys on that stage would not raise their hand if, if they believe that that evolution that happens, you know? And that is that is incredibly alarming. And it doesn't mean that everything else you say and every policy decision you make is bad if you don't believe in evolution. But I have a, I'm have very uncomfortable with you in, in that aspect. So, yeah, I, I agree that we shouldn't have philosopher kings. But at, at the same time, though, it, it opens the door to having – anybody say whatever they want and all these people just, Oh, well, i you know, there are no experts, you know? And I, I feel like content is, is obviously what we should be striving for. But, you know, quite often, you know, if you're a layman on something, you know, like if I go to the doctor and he tells me to do this or that, I'm going to look some things up and see if that checks out or whatever. I'm not going to just go and have some brain surgery You know, I'm I'm probably going to see quite a few different doctors and then I'm going to decide for myself what I think is the best bet with my health, you know?
0: So it's hard for me to evaluate, like if I'm just looking at Sabine's statement, the way you're quoting her, just that one tweet, certainly that statement by itself has a charitable read that's exactly what you're saying, which makes it a somewhat reasonable statement that there is a certain amount of deference to expertise that comes up in practical life and takes the form of our political leaders having scientific advisors, right? On the other hand, I wrote an article for my blog, criticizing something Sabine said in another article years ago. So I sort of have this background of I know how she thinks on this subject. And I know more than what's in that tweet. And in the article that she wrote, She made the claim that scientists, that people, the public, scientists should not be trying to convince the public that climate change is real, that that's not a scientist's job, that um, people just need to trust the scientists because they know what they're talking about and they're experts. Well, I disagree with her on that, right? I I think it is 100% the scientist's job to convince the public. And I get it. The public can just be stupid on this subject and are often stupid on the subject, climate change, climate change in particular. Right. Um, As someone who's a conservative who accepts a, that climate change is a potential real problem. And B doesn't accept any of the solutions that have come out of the Democrats or the left on this, which try to go after economic change and sustainability and things like that. I'm not entirely against sustainability. Just, the ones in particular that they've come up with aren't the greatest. Let let me just say that.
2: But not be against spaceship earth.
0: (laughs) Just just coming from that point of view, you know, it's, I, I've, as a conservative, I'll raise to conservatives. Hey, you know, there's like a legitimate issue here that you don't have to agree with the Democrats on how to solve but you need to offer your solution and your solution can be something substantially different, substantially more conservative. And I think would be better. Furthermore, it's to your advantage to raise it to say, yes, it's a legitimate concern, but what we're going to do is we're going to explore geoengineering technique or whatever, right. come up with what your far more cost efficient solution is than trying to do a gigantic world cap and trade policy that tries to throw back, you know, economic, progress or, or whatever. Okay. And every time I bring this up with conservatives, they get mad at me. And even though I'm actually saying, this is how you defeat the other side. It's good money. You know, this is one of the things where good money drives out the bad, right? If you have a good idea how to take care of climate change so that they can no longer use it to their advantage as a scare tactic. And you say, actually, all we have to do is put some ash in the air. And you know what, that, that would cause other problems, but like, we're really not in danger here. And when I bring this up to conservative, and it is so obviously the right, rational, conservative, conservative thing to do to drive out the bad ideas coming out of the left on this. And I have never, 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 even once had them do anything, but get mad at me and say, you're supporting Al Gore, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I get it. I get it at a deep level that my fellow conservatives, just like if I was a liberal, I'd be saying this about liberals instead, can just be very dense and can be very, very, very stupid. And I understand why Sabine would get upset over that and would want to set up scientists as philosopher kings. It would almost seems like a reasonable alternative to just how bad sometimes the anti-climate crowds act. Okay. And she is still wrong. She is not even, it's not just that she's kind of wrong. She is 100% totally, totally wrong that it is the job of the scientists to explain to the dense conservatives, this is the truth and get it out there and get them thinking in a different way through an explanation. And I don't see a real alternative to that. I think any alternative you offer to that is going to be a problem.
1: Well, one of the things I get from critical rationalism is that we should always be, you know, this idea of finding criticisms against our best theories is, is something that we should all be striving, yeah, to do. I mean, we, you know, we can. There are people who think that uh, uh, climate change is a Chinese hoax or or that evolution isn't real. I'm not 100% convinced that that is a mainstream Republican position, but, you know, maybe there's some, some, a little more nuance here, but I think a far better thing is to sort of ignore these people, you know, ignore, ignore the crazies and, and look for the best arguments you can against, you know, this, this idea that, uh, uh, you know, I think most people do agree that climate change is, real at least right to some degree at least the critics i listen to but you know what really what we're talking about is something like degrowth or or how to address it is degrowth the best way to address right. climate change it's
0: really the policy where we should be <laughs> arguing over right what's yeah. the right policy given the potential problem right and and when do we do it how much do we do it i mean like there's totally legitimate and, and the reason why this matters is because when we talk about scientists with their climate models, every climate model is going to be built off of an assumption about growth continuing as it is, which which could never be a scientific assumption. It would always be an economic assumption. Now, it's reasonable for them to do that in their models. I get that, right? Yeah. Okay, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of teasing out of of the economic side of their model and the scientific side of their model. They often confuse the two as if they're one.
1: Yeah, they, but the idea that we can just pick a model and know what's going to happen in 50 or 100 years is just there's so many problems with that, that that are worth worth considering. I mean, yeah, it's and, very, very hard to predict the future.
0: Well, so I would love to see Sabine. And scientists who are in this space really explain what I just explained, that there's two sides to the model, that what we're really saying is, is that if we don't change things, that there's going to be a problem, but there's like many ways to change things. And we need to start talking about what the options are on the table. And there are
1: many bad ways to change things that could really affect, especially poor people, people living in third world countries or whatever, who who need Fossil fuels to improve their lives, right? It's 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 really, you know. I mean, I think mo- the more voices at the table in this discussion, the better. The more fierce argument on this, the better. I think.
0: So let me let me say something in favor of Sabine, though. I, I guess I sort of have, but let me make it kind of concrete. Yeah, this is a case where there is a large group of people that are my fellow conservatives, that will not change their mind, right? That they're not going to be reasoned with. Now, to that, let me just say, I believe in the long run, there's no such thing as a person who can't be reasoned with. (laughs) I mean, there kind of is because some people are so bad that they're going to die first, right? But in some ways, it doesn't matter. You don't have to reason with everybody. You just have to get enough people over the line. And that is always possible right? And it's, if you were to look at the way conservatives talked about climate change back when I started engaging them on this back, I don't know, a few decades ago, and the way they talk about it today, there's already been a change. I mean, it's slower and stupider than I would have liked, but like it has changed, right? And there is a shift where Republicans and conservatives accept that climate change might be a problem, even if they're not sure they can say it publicly yet. Like we're getting there, right? It's just mm-hmm. taking time <laughs> because ultimately the good arguments do end up winning out. Yeah. Um, but I can see where she's coming from that there's an almost stupidity to how long it takes sometimes because there's these, I mean, like some of the argument, the arguments that my fellow conservatives make on this subject, they're so painful. Right. Like they'll suddenly say, well, I accept that there's climate change, but it's being caused by the sun. And I'll say, look, I I do not understand how that changes a thing. If the sun is causing us to go extinct, then we should probably do something about it. Right. It (laughs) doesn't doesn't matter. Right. It (laughs) is The level of the stupidity of the argument is so bad that I get how painful it is and where she's coming from. Right. And and the fact that there's an almost stuck loop, in in some quarters where they will just quote dumbly these arguments that don't make sense and as if they make sense, it really is painful, right? Well, the converse to that is people on the other side refusing
1: to look at any benefits to climate change too. I mean, you can't right. say that 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 in, at least in certain places, I uh, the the. Climate, the temperature, average temperature increasing is not going to have beneficial effects. And you can see that with global greening, yeah. you know, the earth becoming more green. And you know.
0: And I would raise another one, uh, super, super freakonomics, where they raise the idea of putting ash into the air to save the world. So here we have, a, we have people who are authors who clearly accept that climate change is a problem. And they're trying to propose a cheap solution to that problem. Okay you put a little ash in the air it doesn't take much and immediately the temperature of the world drops so the world can't actually go extinct from climate change okay and this is really good news if you actually buy that climate change is a problem and you buy it as a scientific problem then the fact that we can delay disaster basically indefinitely that's a, that's something that we should know about and it would save you know, people, children getting scared and the Greta Thunberg stuff, et cetera, right? I mean, we've got this this aspect that really deserves to be talked about. And what does the left do on this? Well, it's the equivalently stupid response where they'll actually try to put the people down and try to ruin their reputations. And they'll say they don't know what they're talking about. Then you go argue with the people on the left, which I've done, And they'll actually say things like, yeah, well, you you just can't trust people who don't know what they're talking about. And it's like, look, what they're saying is, is that the temperature can be lowered and we can't be killed. Are you saying that is wrong? And they won't respond, right? The the obviousness with which the left is trying to use climate change to advance non-related goals through a scare tactic, right? It's bewildering that yeah. this is happening that you've got two sides playing political football and neither neither is actually taking the problem seriously and it is bizarre right but that's exactly why we need scientists to explain things like the left needs to understand why what they're doing is making a real problem worse the Conservatives need to understand why them producing a conservative solution would kill the left, right? They would destroy the left being able to use this as a scare tactic. If the conservatives just came out and said, we're in favor of putting ash in the air, and we're going to have these goals. And if we pass this amount, then this is what we're going to do. And everybody suddenly feels relaxed, right? I or not even aside from the the ash
1: I mean you could just say nuclear energy or you know there's right, a, there's a right. hundred there's, there's common there's sense tons of to, ways solutions that right. would be actually be much more effective than turning back the clock to the stone age or something like that with you know the 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 uh,
0: so it's I think this is the thing though is the the, the Deutschians definitely come at it from a standpoint of the who should rule thing right and I've, I've never really seen a convincing presentation from them. I've seen a good one from Deutsch. So let me say that. I've actually seen a good one from Deutsch. But I've, I, I don't in general see them explain what the role of expertise is. And I think that that, that question needs a good, really strong, nuanced answer one that gets repeated a lot, right? I'm not even sure I can give it to you. <laughs> so I, I would like to hear it myself. Like I would really like to understand the four strands view of expertise and how it fits into things. And from this standpoint, I think I can agree with where Mark's coming from. While I, I, I on the one hand, I, I know I don't agree with Sabine's overall view, even if this tweet's not so bad, her overall view is bad, right? So I, I'm kind of glad the Deutschians are pushing back but I wish they would push back in a way that was explain what the role of expertise is. And it can't, it can't be that we just ignore expertise. (laughs) Like it really can't be that. Right. (laughs) I mean, obviously I think the answer is the experts need to explain things. They need to explain things so that people can come on board. And that's the real role of expertise. I think
2: I have something I can, I could add to that. I think it's like something like, the best new ideas always have unanticipated benefits. So it's stupid to require people who want to do new things to enumerate the benefits beforehand. The best you can do is choose smart people and then trust their intuitions about what's worth exploring, what is worth exploring. Now, the reason it sounds like I read that is because I did. <laughs> and that was a treat by Paul Graham that was retreated by nobody else, but David Deutsch. So I, You know, if we're talking about these expertise and authorities and stuff like that, I don't know. Like, it's it's it was rather because that was another one I sent to you. And I thought this is very related to this thing. And I kind of want to do them right next to each other. So I don't know why we should just trust smart people with their intuitions about what they're exploring. So maybe we should just trust smart climate scientists with their intuitions about what they're exploring, right? I mean, like, you could easily interpret that is saying that, you know? And it's funny because I'm I guess I'm kind of weird because I thought what Deutsch said to Sabine was silly. And then what I thought what Deutsch tweeted here was silly, was silly. So I'm you know I, I realize there's two sides of the coin here. And like I said, it's it's always seems like it's a matter of degree between how I disagree with Deutsch, you know? And I guess I'm always kind of I am kind of a centrist type of guy. You know? And but like I don't know how I could <laughs> I could try to reinterpret that tweet I just read in a way of like, who should roll, right? I right. mean, it's just kind of like, and I don't even agree with who should roll. But I mean, like, so the best new ideas have unanticipated benefits. Okay, fine. But okay, I'm an angel investor. I'm going to throw, you know, $100 million into whatever new technology you're going to have. I'm just going to trust you. I know sometimes that does happen, you know, but there's all kinds of other games you can, people can play with, with right. you know, buying stock and something else so they can edge their way out of it. But it's just kind of like, but still, I'm not putting my money on you unless you can explain to me what you intend to do with this or any type of effects. And I think for the most time, if people are really throwing real money down or going to change policy, you're going to have to explain some stuff to them. You know, I mean, I understand, like, if you're just going to work on theoretical stuff, and I think there is value in in some of that. But I'm not I'm not putting a lot of money or time into something if you're not gonna give me any explanation. I'm just supposed to intru- I'm just supposed to trust smart people. I, I I don't know how you could whatever word games you can play to to say, well what Deutsch said was right with Sabine and what he says is right here. I I, I don't think you can win on that one. There's just <laughs> those are those are very, very <laughs> conflicting. And what I find quite often is Deutsch seems very partisan. Very, very partisan. He seems to be very critical of the left and not so critical of the right. I'm, you know, I, I know he is more right leaning, I feel like. And but it, it seems to be the case that you know the right wing can say a lot of crazy stuff and he'll just kind of downplay. You know, he downplayed the insurrection on January 6th quite a bit, which I thought was pretty um surprising and shocking to me.
0: Did he, um, I didn't even I, know that. He, he did, oh, he, yeah.
2: He, yeah, he downplayed like, oh, he, he didn't want to call it an insurrection. And, you know, he thought that there were, that was no threat to the American democracy or something like that. America will go on. And, you know, and America has gone on sort of, you know, I guess we'll see how this Trump indictment goes and all that stuff, you know. But it's definitely created some tense times, you know, and they I mean, in fact, that matter, too, is just embarrassing. And it's not like it wasn't a global phenomenon. Did, did Venezuela or some other government just have an insurrection? And think in Central America, South America. You know, I think somewhere in the, the uh, Southeast Asia, there was something like that, you know. And I mean, we had race riots in America over the summer during the pandemic. And it seemed like the rest of Europe just had to, had to join in on us. And they did the same thing, you know. So, like, people really do watch us, you know. And so uh, I thought, you know, the, the January 6th incidents was. Was very alarming and shocking and a, a scar amongst this country, but I mean, I I don't know how I'm supposed to trust smart people through intuitions, you know who 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 decides who's smart. So you know, so
0: I I do have to put in here my opinion. This is this is similar to my concerns with the Popperian war on words, where instead of understanding why Popper's epistemology works and what it was really trying to say that you go after the way things are worded. So somebody says, this is evidence for a theory. And then you go, Oh, they don't understand science because evidence is really only ever used to refute a theory, you know, something along those lines. Like there's this whole stream of things that comes out of the Twitter rats in particular, where they attack what a person said and then try to use it to remove their credibility. There are no set of words you can use that can't be misinterpreted in that way if you want to. So it's not too hard to guess that what they're really doing is that they're finding they're finding a way to misinterpret the person when they disagree with them. And that's really where the Popperian War on Words gets you, right? It's You're going to end up simply calling out the people you disagree with, but then the people that you agree with, you're going to end up accepting them and just charitably interpreting them as, well, what they really meant was this. There really is no way to phrase things. Let me use a real life example here. So we had an episode where I criticized David Deutsch um, for his argument for objective beauty. So Deutsch has this argument in beginning of infinity where he talks about Mozart or Beethoven, I forget which, and he is Um, throwing away pieces of music because it just, it isn't what he really wants it to be. And he's error correcting until he gets to just the right piece of music. That sounds the best. So Deutsch points out that this means it was hard to vary. And therefore he claims that this means that it was objective. Now, what I pointed out though, is that there's a problem with this argument because it can be used for recipes. Now I, I don't think anybody doubts that taste is subjective and yet Waffle Love, the owner, he has exactly the same story. He tried recipe after recipe and he kept trying it out on his friends and family until he finally got to to just the perfect recipe and then he knew he had the right business and and of course it then takes off and he's very successful because he has the tastiest waffles around, which by the way, they are the tastiest waffles around. Uh, This is exactly the same argument that Deutsch uses and yet we're using it on something that's clearly subjective. Now, in the case of uh, the recipes, there's an explanation for for why you can error correct towards a, a best version of a waffle, even though taste is ultimately subjective. And the reason why is because we have shared genes. So there's this parochial reason. Right, that we have these shared genes. There's some variants. so maybe not everybody loves waffle love uh, waffles, but a lot of people do. Certainly enough to build a business around, and it's better than most other versions of waffles. And again, there is an objective nature to taste, but it's across the population, and it's based only on something entirely parochial: our genes and how they affect uh, our taste. Just like uh, Deutsch argues that there is no population that likes any kind of music. Um, likewise there is no population that all in you know, enjoys feces and thinks that feces taste good. But if you don't personally like waffle love, There is no objective sense in which you are wrong because it is still a purely subjective thing because it's based on something entirely parochial, which is just genes and how genes affect what we consider to taste good and what we consider to not taste good. Now, could you use this same argument for music? Well, Steven Pinker does. He has the music is cheesecake for the ears argument that he uses. Now, I'm not saying that argument's right. The point I was making was that Deutsch's argument didn't sufficiently differentiate between Pinker's theory and his own theory. Deutsch was, in essence, arguing that if it's hard to vary, that we know that it's not only objective at the level of a population, but that it's non parochial. But he didn't give any argument for why it was non parochial. It could still be parochial based on the argument that he used. You could probably add to his argument and you could probably find a way to make it a better argument and error correct it until it's a better argument. And it also eliminates the Steven Pinker cheesecake for the ears argument. And yet my point was, is that there was something insufficient with his argument. Well, I had a Deutchian write to me right after that episode. And he said, no, you are wrong because you're using the word insufficient. And insufficiency, insufficiency, that implies justificationism, you're being a justificationist, and therefore your argument is incorrect. So I wrote back to him and I tried to explain that, while it's true that the word insufficient in some circumstances might imply some form of justificationism, that it it wasn't a given that it meant that, and that it wasn't in this case, it didn't mean any sort of justification in this case. I was pointing out a logical flaw with his argument. I even gave him an example, this Deutchian example, and I said, suppose I give you propositional logic, and I say A and B imply C, then I demonstrate A to be true, and then I tried to draw the conclusion C. We would say you had an insufficient argument. We don't know C to be true or false. We know A is true, but we, you, you didn't show that B was true. Therefore, we can't yet conclude that C is true. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So we would say that's an insufficient argument. Now, clearly this has nothing to do with justificationism. This is just what we mean when we're trying to explain that there was a rational flaw or a logical flaw with the argument being made. So after I wrote that, he wrote back to me and he said, no, you're just being a justificationist. And so you're wrong. So I stopped and I thought about it and I thought, okay, he's clearly getting tripped up on the word insufficient because insufficient might in some cases imply justificationism and he's struggling to see past that. So what word can I use or phrase can I use that would help him see that this is a legitimate argument, a legitimate criticism that needs to be taken seriously that has nothing to do with justificationism. And I thought about it and I thought about it and I realized there is no word or set of words or phrases or sentences in the English language that he can't see as justificationist that's gonna express the same idea. He was making a choice in essence to read it as justificationist because he didn't like the argument. Now I'm sure that if I had been making a different argument let's say I had been arguing against someone who was arguing in favor of communism, and I was saying this communist, his argument is insufficient. I don't doubt that at this point, suddenly the word insufficient would be just fine. He would understand exactly what I was trying to say, exactly what I was trying to get at. He would see that it has nothing to do with justification. It probably wouldn't even cross his mind to think of it as justificationist. But because I was making an argument he didn't want to hear... Um, he was getting tripped up on words, but there was no actual set of words I could use that he wouldn't get tripped up on uh, under this circumstance. And I started to realize this is the problem with the Popperian War on Words. It, it gives you an easy out. If you have not explanations being offered and the person happens to use a term that you can take as justificationist or about confirmation or empiricism or any of the things that Deutsch writes against, there are so many words that might imply those. In fact, it's literally impossible to have a conversation without using words that can't be taken in such a way if the the person so chooses. So then the person doesn't have to hear the criticism because they've been able to criticize you for what words you used. And there's no set of words you can use that they can't criticize and therefore thereby just simply dismiss your whole argument. In essence, this person had turned off their error correction they there was no way to express this completely valid criticism to them that they weren't going to dismiss based solely on which words i chose to use and so i do think that this is what we're kind of getting here is that in one case it was pro what they believed in one case it was against what they believed but you've kind of they're not we're not getting to the heart of the issue okay which is what is the role of experts Okay. Yeah. We want people who know more to be able to experiment and to try things out. There's a certain truth to Paul Graham's tweet, right? And there's a certain truth to Sabine's tweet. <laughs> they're both getting at, and Mark, you're right that I think as a, just a kind of surface read, these, they, they seem like they're at odds with each other. We, we need an explanation as to how to navigate between under what circumstance are we saying Sabine's wrong and Paul's right when they're kind of saying the same thing, but in different ways. (laughs) And I definitely think we need a stronger understanding. We we need to, this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm such a strong advocate of charitable reading, right? I'm prepared to, even though I know Sabine has some incorrect ideas about this, I'm prepared to at least assume that what she's really saying in this tweet is, hey, we need to trust experts more it's hard for them to explain things to the public, which is kind of a true statement, right? And I think in the case of the Paul Graham statement, he's saying, hey, we need to trust experts more. He's saying the same thing as Sabine when you read him charitably, right? And so that's kind of true too. And yet it still comes down to, we don't ever want them to have the power to enforce it on us. They must convince us. And I think that is the ultimate, open society answer is that science is a means of persuasion it's not yeah. an authority
1: yeah so the point of expertise is that what 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 an expert should do is to argue for their position and try to try to convince other people and right i think in this in this modern world this is happening more than ever really and That's why I'm a complete, I mean, this, this is one, one way that I disagree with both the right and the left. I think I'm a complete optimist in terms of all these electronic communication and Twitter and all this, the more arguments that are out there, the better, the more podcasts where people are arguing for their ideas, the better. And, um, through, through this process, we humans will hopefully make a lot of mistakes and. Fallibly move closer to truth, kind of like what Deutsch's, Deutsch advocates, or at least I hear him saying.
0: Have you read um, John Roush's book, Constitution of Knowledge?
1: No, I should. You've you, you, uh, you've recommended it to me, and I, I read his, yeah. his his other <laughs> other one. But I I, he, I I feel like he's a little pessimistic. But for but uh, uh, yeah, I should read it.
0: So yeah, he he actually makes somewhat of an argument against yeah. the marketplace of free ideas. Although yeah. I think in the long run, he's, apt, he's, he's entirely optimistic that yeah you start off with a marketplace of free ideas and it may not necessarily be good, but that over time we will move towards that because we understand how to build the kinds of institutions that favor truth over falseness.
1: I think long term, my prediction: hundred years, two hundred years, people are going to look back and say, "Wow, remember when people thought that social media and and Twitter and all this stuff was was going to tear apart our country?" And think I think it will be more obvious that it was 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 a this access to information and communication was a good thing for humans. Yeah. because you know that's just part of it's just my ideas about what humans are. We're we're, we're knowledge creators, and we we like truth and, and, you know, we want to be, be right. Even as, as flawed as we are.
0: Yeah. Um, we will have to do a separate podcast on John Rouse's constitutional knowledge. Sorry, go ahead. That's no, fine.
1: Um,
2: yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause you know, the French, that's why the French revolution is so interesting because during the French revolution, there was an explosion of like gazettes and media at that time that wrote, you know, political ideas and wrote about current events and news stories, you know, and you know, that, that ended up being, you know, ended up in a bad way, you yeah. know, and there was a similar explosion in America ended up in a good way. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, Deutsch will say, you know, we're like, you know, there's no guarantee that we won't just blow up, you know, or our civilization in, in some way, you know, there are, there are no guarantees that we're going to come through it. And, and it does seem to be the best bet is some type of open society, democratic institution to go because it does seem like more authoritarian, more authoritative ones don't have enough corrective mechanisms in it to keep that from happening. You know, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a brave new world out there. Who knows with AGI? Because you know, the Jacquard loom people thought that no one will ever, you know have to work again to destroy all their jobs. The textile industry is destroyed, you know, and that certainly wasn't the case, you know, and now with AGI, we're, we're talking about, you know, well, you know, no truck drivers will have a job. All of our our jobs will be automated and no one will be able to work. We won't be able to find, and they'll say that this is something different, you know, and part of me is, you're you're talking about
1: more AI than AGI though. Right. Yeah, eh, it could be
2: both, really. Both. I mean, okay, e-
1: either or, you know, AI okay.
2: or AGI, for that matter. You know, we're okay. Maybe on the cusp of. We're definitely have AI in some type of level right now, right? I mean, the people yeah. in the art world are, are tremendously scared, and I think they have reason to be scared, um, with the 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 IR, AI art generators I see. Um, yeah. But uh, AGI is a whole different ball game, obviously too. But that's even more complicated. Um, But yeah, part of me thinks that, yeah, that is different. Part of me thinks that eh, we'll find ways we'll get by, you know? I mean, I think we will find ways, you know, but um, I don't, I don't claim to be prophetic about, about the future.
0: John Roush in the Constitution of Knowledge, he points out that we did freak out over the um the printing press, right? That it's going yeah. to tear us apart. One of the things he points out is A, it did tear us apart. Massive wars came out of the printing press. And B, and B, we now look back on it, back on it, and the the idea of the printing press is going to tear us apart is silly, right? So it's a matter of generating the knowledge on how to control it. And it's a very Popperian view, by the way. He, he uses Charles Peirce more than Popper, but he's very much into Popper also. Um, but uh, social media is the same way. His, his point of view is we can solve this problem, we will solve this problem. Social media will turn out to be all the positive and none of the negative, but we aren't there today and we've got to figure it out. And it's new. That's why it's carrying at us right at the moment, just like the printing press tore at us. But it's a solvable problem, and we will solve it. So and I do think that's about that's about right. Like you, we, the marketplace of, of ideas idea, concept, it, it downplays or ignores the importance of institutions, the fact that institutions are what create the environment where books aren't dangerous anymore, right? <laughs> I and mean, it's we have ways of going about this where we understand how to do it now. And we're going to do that with social media. We're just at an era where we're, we're still trying to figure it out and we're getting there. So I, I, I'm i very optimistic in that we will solve the problem, but I accept that it is a problem that needs to be solved.
2: Well, I mean, I guess you could say it, it destroyed our world in a sense, but the printing press did destroy a lot of ideas of that and they found new and better ones. Right. You know, I mean, mon- mon- I want to say the printing press is the reason why monarchies were dissolved or why the enlightenment happened all the way but you know it certainly played a part i had imagine you yeah. know so i mean their way of life was definitely if you want to say destroyed you could also look at it in more in a positive light you know that was that it was improved dramatically i'd be interested to know how though that more wars happened because of the printing press cuz well
0: that was what as far to- my understanding
2: is like there were plenty of fighting in between tribes. I think maybe we didn't have superpowers as much as we had that could do as much destruction. But I mean, since the dawn of time, you know, we've been killing each other right and left over silly stuff or, or maybe not silly stuff
3: as well too.
0: So maybe, you know, I I don't have the statistics, Andy. So maybe it's wrong to say that it created more wars, but it definitely created some of the worst wars, the, the religious wars that followed and things like that due to, the Protestant Reformation. And so I think there's a good, good case to be made there that the printing press was the, you know, proximate cause (laughs) of of a lot of that. So the fact that something has a negative effect doesn't mean it won't be in the long term, long run, a positive effect. Sometimes you just have to work out how to deal with it. I, I think that actually goes for what you were talking about AI too. Right. I mean, like the fear that AI will take away all the trucker jobs. That's probably a legitimate fear, but it's not likely to ever come to fruition. Um, For one thing, AI, just driving, try to do automatic driving with AI. It's really a hard problem to solve. We're not probably all that close to solving it. When we do, it will only be the easiest parts. It'll be like on the freeway, and then you'll need probably more truck drivers to be able to do the last mile, is what they call it, the last mile. So, I mean, like the odds that the technology would just come into being all at once and suddenly cause a massive drop of all the jobs is not probably true. I keep seeing using the word probably here. Who knows, right? It could, like it's not like technology hasn't in the history of the world destroyed somebody's life through automation. Yeah. Of course it has. I
1: think you know. the reality is it probably will destroy a lot of jobs. I mean whether they're truck drivers or computer programmers or or teachers, it's going to radically affect the way people work at the very least but you know i still think big picture i mean i'm i'm an optimist i think it'll 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 take away it'll empower people more than anything and uh and just positively change the way people work menial labor like being a Probably in a hundred years, people look back and think, oh, people worked as cashiers and and picking berries right. in a farm, you know, things that, you know, no, they're just not good use of of human labor or human yeah. minds, really. So I yeah. think it's big picture. It looked much, very much like the printing press. It will uh, it will be a positive.
0: I, I think you, we do have to recognize, though. That there is always a potential danger. And and the very fact that people raise it as a potential danger is part of how an open society avoids the danger, right? So when somebody brings up, oh, AI is going to put all the truckers out of work, the fact that truckers won't get put out of work will in part happen because somebody raised the issue AI is going to put truckers out of work. (laughs) It's weird how that works, right? It's kind of reflexive. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's necessary to have the alarmists in society so that the alarm goes off so early that things don't go the way that people are worried about.
1: Sounds like you're almost defending our negativity bias as performing a useful function.
0: I think it does. Right.
2: And we call them alarmists. You know, and yeah, there are some like that, but some of them within the field. I mean, Sam Altman recently testified about the dangers of AI, you know, and he's the founder of Chat GTP, you know? So, I mean, it's not even like the people in the field of creating this don't think there are some things we have to be worried about, you know? Obviously, the Manhattan Project, there was a legitimate scare at one time of, you know, setting the atmosphere on fire and having some chain reaction, you know? I think there's... I people, they, they figured it out decently quick, you know, that that wouldn't be the case, you know, but it, it was a legitimate scare at first. And, you know, if you, if you told me that then I was a scientist, you know, I would have been, I, I would not have been in good shape when I went back home <laughs> to the house, you know, after thinking about like, yeah, we are literally going to destroy the world by setting the atmosphere on fire and blowing up the entire planet, you know, but, um, who knows? You know, maybe there's other there's other things that happen. You know, I get. They, I think Tegmark has some interesting things about that. You know, where he talks about was he called, like the red? Uh, he has a name for certain I- ideas or inventions that could destroy the planet or something. Are you, th- like are you thinking
1: of, of Bostrom and the white ball, black ball?
2: Yeah, that's it. Vu- that Bostrom, vulnerable, yeah.
1: Vul- vulnerable world hypothesis. Yeah,
2: I mean, I don't really always it's to that i think it's i think it's interesting way to define a black ball white ball thing i think some people said well if it's just as easy to destroy the planet you know with putting silica in the microwave you know we'd all probably been dead a long time ago you know but you know who knows or there could be technologies in the future where that that might be the case you know maybe 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 we can separate quarks, you know and it's going to be the worst explosion ever you know i mean but who knows but you know and I think we are. How much more time you want to go with this? We're we're poaching Lex Friedman type of podcast (laughs) time right
1: now. I was thinking we're we're coming up uh, three hours now. Are there any more like rapid fire criticisms, Mark, that you'd like to make of uh, the Deutschian world?
2: I think since we've talked about possible future stuff, I think the last thing I could say to maybe sum it up is I feel like sometimes. Deutsch comes off as kind of a futurist in a way that I feel like he seems a little bit is optimism, which I like, and is, is very attractive to it. And I think a lot of the, you know, the listen to what the scientists say, obviously have a lot of bad philosophies where, you know, I think I talked about it recently, you know, feeling insignificant because the universe is big is silly, you know, and a lot of the pro science people almost seems to want to belittle you in, in such a way. You know, and Deutsch doesn't do that, hmm. you know. And uh, his, his outlook is very optimistic, or at least at least not like saying that you aren't special. You know, other ones just want to make you feel like, in, you know, you're just a chemi- in the whole chemical scum thing. You know, and I think Deutsch's TED talk about the TED chemical scum is always an uplifting and great experience. It almost sets my mind right every time I, I listen to that one. Yeah. Um, but quite often, I feel like Deutsch is talking about future technologies or a way we should affect policy with these technologies already being a positive thing. And I feel like sometimes he comes out as kind of prophetic on it. Like even in beginning of infinity, he talks about, you know, hospitable stuff and, you know, any, any block of the, of the, of the, when he talks about in between galaxies, you know, each, block so many square miles only has, you know, so many atoms. But if we had a spaceship that could transmutate these atoms into certain things, we could find ways to, to do work and be able to create new things. So there's, you know, it's only a matter of matter of knowledge that prevents us, which I agree, but I feel like, man, I don't know. I feel like out in the void of the cosmos. I don't care what spaceship I got. I think I'm dead. I, I, you know, I, I, I feel like, and I know he's kind of using that as a metaphor and maybe try to drive home his point that how transformative knowledge is. But if you take that literally, I feel like that's a pretty rosy picture. You know, I I, I, I just feel like sometimes he just comes off as too much of a futurist in in a sense that like, yeah, like maybe some of this identity culture we have now is kind of weird. And I think Deutsch somewhat, maybe I want to say subscribes to it, but, you know, transhumanism probably will be a thing, you know, and we will maybe be able to override our genes in in such a way to where a lot of the arguments that Deutsch makes that we're not affected by our genes, which I don't agree with either. And it's probably going to tailwind us off for another 30 minutes. But in the long run, he might be right. In a sense that, you know, if, when we are fully transhumanist and we can just change our genes at the drop of a hat, you know, our genes won't matter as much to us anymore. And it will just be whatever we think we want, you know, and, but I don't know if that technology will really happen, you know, I mean, maybe 300 years from now, we still won't be able to have, you know, trucks drive autom- automatically, you know, have automated truck drivers, but, will be able to like grow horns on her head and be completely healthy you know i i don't know you know there's a lot of technologies that people soon we'd have you know back in the day that we don't
1: well mark i really appreciate you coming on this podcast and bringing your criticisms of uh uh here and 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 also uh i really appreciate both you and your wife sadia bringing up some uh criticisms on the the facebook group too i think we we don't want an echo chamber so that's that's the uh definitely i think we all probably all agree the the wrong approach to moving closer to truth in this life or however you want to put it
0: yeah we definitely don't but... want an echo chamber we don't we <laughs> sorry i was going to say exactly what peter said as a joke but now i've already lost it so cut this part of the show oh
1: no no that was good that was good
0: okay
3: yeah
1: we definitely you could just that. put
2: some reverb effect on peter's voice yeah. and then slowly slowly use ai to make it sound like bruce at the end just a bit yeah. but, okay but yeah well thanks for thanks for having me i hope people Thought I had something to say, and um, I've always respected both of you guys. Is one reason why I continue talking to you guys. We both are very open and take criticism very well, and you know, and and give good criticism. So it's it's great to meet you guys.
0: All right, thank you. Great to meet you. Thank you. you. The theory of anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google The Theory of Anything Podcast Apple or something like that.